Hello? Is this listener Cameron? This is listener Cameron. How's it going? <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, very well, very well. This is Christian, and that's uh, Joe's here with me. Hello, hello. This is going to be great. It sounds like a real call-in show. Absolutely. Oh, awesome. How's it been going so far? You're the first. Frame it up for us, Christian. <laughs> well, no, this is the call-in show, so we say it's, go It's so, a call-out show, first of all. Second of all, yeah. um, you, it, this is your inspiration, so you have to tell our, remind our listeners what we ask people to talk about. We're not going to record it in some kind of pre-roll thing? No, no. Some kind of fanfare? Oh, well, we of... can put in a musical bump and all <laughs> yeah, that stuff? Yeah. It'd be great. It'd be <laughs> great. Something, the podcast equivalent of jazz hands at Absolutely. the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm spreading my fingers right now. No, so we... We asked, uh, we put out a call to, to, to listeners and we put out a call to the oral argument family to, uh, to reach out to, to us and well, to allow us to reach out to them. Cause as you say, it's a call out show. <laughs> I think it's important we get the logistics exactly right. Cause pe uh, yes. otherwise people are going to stop listening. Yeah. And, and please feel free to keep trying <laughs> to just rearrange the chess pieces rather than talk about the game that That's we're playing. What we, <laughs> well, so we, we, we put a call out. <laughs> Get on with it, man. Uh, to, 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 uh, we want to hear from our, our, the Oral Argument family about me things in media that have inspired them in their understandings, feelings, emotions toward law and policy. So these can be uh, movies, books, uh, other podcasts, uh, art, sculpture, whatever, paintings. Um, it could be anything. It literally could be anything. Because media is a very broad word. Not literally, but it could be many things. And so uh, one of the people who got in touch with us is longtime listener, first-time caller, um, listener Cameron. Welcome, Cameron. Hi. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a great topic. <laughs> awesome. Okay, see, at least one person liked it, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> at least one. <laughs> um, how, what did you think when you heard about this topic, Cameron? What did did, did something immediately spring to mind, or did you mull it over a little bit? What, what do you got? I actually did mull it over a little bit. So the immediate thing that sprang to mind was um, was rather obvious, and that was the kind of recent discussions that's been out in the media about uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and Go Set a Watchman and things like that. And, and I've, of course, read To Kill a Mockingbird a number of times, read it growing up in school. Um, and I, it came to mind because specifically because um, – a friend of mine, the day before I took the LSAT, uh, just to kind of like calm my nerves, rented the movie and we all watched it together. So in mm. terms of like an inspiration, I had that kind of background. Um, but I kind of, I don't really have anything new to add there. I think mm -hmm. that's been kind of well-mined by other people. Um, and kind of a more recent uh, inspiration for me, I guess inspiration is the right word, or at least interest of mine, um, because I first really encountered it during law school was... Uh, the book play or the book musical and movie versions of uh, Les Miserables, uh, the famous Victor Hugo French novel originally, musical and now uh, movie, which I only for the first time ever watched. Uh, saw the movie just last year uh, during my 3L year of law school. I'll identify that at least. Um, and then got the chance to see the musical on Broadway also within the year. And just recently, two weeks ago, um, bought the novel, which I haven't started yet, and it's a long it's gonna be a long road. But I uh how long is the novel? Um, it's very big. <laughs> it is enormous. I think it's about two and a half inches thick in paperback and let's see how many it's it's separated into five parts. 
So it's not a board book. No. No. Okay. It's about, right. It looks like it's about 1,200 pages. <laughs> okay. Well, every, every journey starts with the first step. So have you started it yet? Uh, I actually haven't. I've been trying to finish um, another long book. Long books are kind of my thing. I'm working through uh, A Song of Ice and Fire right now. So mm. I've got a road to, to get on that as well. So you're, you're playing the um, game of the thrones. It's going to sit right on my shelf right next to Infinite Jest for a while, I think. Wow. Yeah, you really are curating very, very, very large books. Mm-hmm. Infinite right. Jest, Infinite Jest is infinitely long as well. Uh, but it, it, right. it, you could, it's doable. You should definitely, I would, I would skip right to that one. But let's, but let's skip to what you want to talk. Let's skip to what you want to talk about. So what is it about Les Mis yeah. that, yeah, go ahead. Well, as far as the like legal themes in it, I think it really does do a good job of, um, laying bare kind of the fallibility of law issue. Uh, yeah. I mean, essentially, and I don't know if I should like go into some of the basics of the, the plot elements at the very beginning, at least to like lay it out for people who don't know, but yeah, no spoilers, um, no spoilers for late miss. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it's we're, kind of, allowed, we're well past that. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're allowed to, so this is the policy of the oral argument podcast. We are allowed to spoil anything relentlessly <laughs> Whenever we feel like it, and if you don't like that listener, stop now. <laughs> well, I right. guess, and please I think never the come back. Fifty-two years old. So. Yeah, there's yeah. been plenty of time. There's been plenty of time. <laughs> yeah, no. The policy for this episode will be if someone is discussing, we, we will say what they're going to discuss first. And if you if you don't want to be spoiled, you're going to have to skip ahead, right? Because it, right. they may take their inspiration from something that is a spoiler. And in that spirit, per, uh, please proceed, listener Cameron. <laughs> Right. So the basic setup is that the protagonist of the book, uh, and it's very clearly meant to be very from the get go, is meant to identify with him as the um, as the good person and, and see things kind of from his perspective. But the protagonist is uh, Jean Valjean, who's initially arrested for stealing a loaf of bread. You know, he's poor and hungry, so he stole a loaf of bread. Um, we would probably say it was out of necessity nowadays, um, but. He was initially given a five-year sentence for that uh, because of repeated escape attempts. He essentially got 19 years of hard labor. And uh, interestingly, and this shouldn't be overlooked, when he uh, is finally let free from the hard labor, he gets like a yellow passport that forever identifies himself as like what amounts to a thief or a felon of some kind. Mm -hmm. And so he's consistently refused uh, places to stay because of that. He can't, you know, get a job or anything because of that. Um, the musical and the movie obviously just kind of like hash over that very quickly. I imagine the book uh, would go into like substantially more detail. Do you think you're more attuned um, to it because of discussions in in law school about uh, sex offender registries and restrictions on yeah, where they can and live? like other probationary and supervisory release like um, conditions that you know kind of interfere with? I think I've lost a lot of times recently. There's been news stories about um, the so-called like ban the box movement so that yeah. people don't have to necessarily check their like criminal history on uh, employment applications and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously there's places where that is appropriate and there's other places where for various reasons you might think that it's a uh, too much of a hurdle for like previous criminals to find employment. And so, yeah, it, it kind of gets short shift in the movie and the musical, but I think the yellow passport thing is significant. Um, you know, what he ends up doing is he ends up essentially breaking parole and like ripping up his yellow passport and changing his identity. Uh, and he's pursued throughout the book by 
uh, I guess what in French is referred to as an investigator, but it could be any kind of like law enforcement person uh, whose name is Javert. Mm-hmm. And to be, played, to be played by Tommy Lee Jones in the movie, I think. <laughs> <laughs> not exactly okay, so I, I like that image as well it's the french version of tommy lee jones exactly, exactly. russell crowe in yeah. other words mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it does kind of resi- now the more you say that it kind of resembles in the movie <laughs> um so, so, yeah, law, so law is basically interfering with this guy's ability to be you know which is the same which what what, what resonates with you with like whether it's collateral consequences even in the united states today it's like the you know, this is the thing, unless you look at it from the perspective of the of the person who's been convicted, you have a hard time imagining the full weight of the law. And this guy's under such weight because of these restrictions and maybe because of, well, I'll let you go into more, but uh, that he throws off all those shackles. And and then what happens? Is that, so why is Javert, still, that right? is Javert pursuing him because he has because of his, um, uh, as you say, um, breaking from his parole? Is that why? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, and I think the book might treat this, from my understanding, a little differently than the, the musical, but my understanding from the musical, and this is, might be a, just a rough approximation, is that he he certainly breaks his parole by tearing up his, uh, like, yellow passport and um, then changing his identity and everything of that nature. But he also, he also does commit, like, two, I think, two different acts of stealing something else. Um, at first, it's the, the, for lack of a better word, the fine china from the uh, from a church, mm-hmm. and or at least a monastery or something. And then, like, also potentially like stealing a coin uh, or something else from just another like citizen he runs into. Um, and then I think it's portrayed as that he regrets those decisions, but that they're still on the look for him for those uh, thefts as well. So it's those thefts and then breaking parole. That their uh, inspector Javert is uh, pursuing him, and it, yeah, essentially what you get is a, a dichotomy between um, the Jean Valjean character and the Javert character, kind of of uh, in some ways like the meaning of law and like when it should be applied and not. Because um, the book obviously portrays Jean Valjean as a sympathetic character who was only initially arrested because of his need for for food, um, while it kind of depicts Javert as um, like misguided, but just kind of a str- a believer in kind of like a strong version of the rule of law and uh, mm-hmm. maybe very, uh, very rule based, uh, but it depicts him rather like tragically instead of uh, like judgmentally. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of get two sides of a, two sides of a kind of a legal coin about what to do with scenarios like this. I mean, and, the, and I think one thing that's interesting about the book or at least the movies, because I can speak to those with, I guess, more authority. But um, the the movie and the musical make it seem kind of like obviously the case that what's happened to Jean Valjean is wrong. Um, but you know, five years hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread is probably a little extreme. But like, there are um, you you know there are numerous like sentences that that happen on a day to day basis that we might think of as as yeah not necessarily the same, but like, like that, um, for, for doing what we would think of our, our kind of crimes of necessity or petty crimes. Um, for instance, I found a, uh, and I don't know all the facts of this, but I found a citation to 
um, to Les Mis in a Supreme Court opinion that was dealing, well, it was actually a dis, uh, dissent from dismissal as improvidently granted, but it was a dissent by, uh, I think, Justice Douglas that was suggesting that the vagrancy law that was at issue in that case was essentially just like criminalizing someone for like existing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a pretty common thing for quite a long time. And there are other similar laws still in place today. Um, and of course, if someone was arrested today for stealing bread and then tried to escape, I mean, they'd very likely, it could very well end up with 19 years in prison, maybe oh, not yeah. hard labor. Well, was, uh, one, one of the, one of the three strikes cases, um, what was it? Was it Harmelin? I forget the names of these, uh, the Supreme Court cases, which approved of the three strikes laws. These are, you know, you commit three felonies and, and you get an automatic life in prison with that. I don't know if it was without parole or not. I forget. Um, it was, this was a uh, late nineties, early 2000s. Rejected eighth amendment challenges. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was a, vi- that was a case where he had stolen vitamins. Uh, the third strike was oh, for okay. stealing vitamins. And, well, and I'll, one of those I'll cases. Give you this, this yeah. one, which has even closer facts, um, that I found kind of just when I, when I started to think about this, when you guys proposed the, the topic, I looked up, I tried to look up citations to lay Miz and court opinions and found a three strikes case out of California. And I don't know exactly what his the defendant's first two strikes were for, but um, I think they were thefts of some kind. But his third case that was actually at issue in this case um, was a burglary case where he had entered a church, entered a food pantry at a church, and stolen food. And this was actually a food pantry that he like regularly went to, mm-hmm. and he wanted to present a defense that like he actually just thought the food was like for him, and so like he did like he was hungry and he thought like no one would essentially object to him taking the food that he normally would take. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, lame, pantry. a lot of lame is in that, in that case. Right. And then, yeah. I mean, that, because it was his third strike, um, under the statute, it was, uh, it was a mandatory minimum of 25 years to life. So it was 25 yeah. years. And, you know, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the exact sentence was in that, but you know what I like about this? Uh, and I don't know if your inspiration is, is coming from the same place, but, but one of the things that that story does is by telling and and obviously at great length, staying with the story of this one person who's on the receiving end of the law, it 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 kind of you know we do have parts of our mind that think very rule like and um in, in terms of you know well here are the rules here's what should happen and we kind of think logically about those rules. We have another part of our mind which is very much about stories and empathizing with other with other people. We all have these in in different degrees and 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 maybe you know uh maybe literature like Les Mis is one way. Um, that you can actually achieve um, some amount of of empathy with the lived life of the law for people who are maybe very different than you. You know, people who are in danger of rushing up against the law's kind of sharper edges, uh, even if you yourself can't imagine yourself being in that position or you can't imagine someone in your family being in that position. Uh, Right. I think that's a great point about it. And one thing I appreciate about the story, and I think makes it um, probably a, a very lasting piece of literature in a way is that like while while like personally i've like never been in a circumstance like Jean Valjean or lived any kind of thing of that nature um but certainly not been on the brink of starvation or anything of that sort i i'm more like politically inclined to immediately kind of sympathize with that character and obviously the, the musicals and movies want you to do that immediately and, and that that's that would be where my inclinations would be anyway but it's helpful that the novel also doesn't portray like portrays javert as just kind of misguided and not like evil per se mm-hmm. like you know it's not like he's like the state 
or someone who would want to enforce the law is is uh, um, some sort of like dic- like evil dictator in this case, or some sort of tyrant. It just presents him as a uh, uh, like a rule, like a very rule based individual who thinks. You know, you can. I don't know exactly how his motivation well, is like, Yeah, in a way, Cameron, it's the opposite of being a tyrant, right? I mean, to be right. bound by the rules is to say that I myself will not make these decisions. I'm not going to play God and pass judgment on my own. I'm going to enforce the laws which are which are there. And there's something very right. entrancing about that. But it's but but if you if if your theory of the story is, and I think it's fascinating that that it shows that that by painting Javert as in some way. Um, as oppressed by these situations as Valjean is, um, it, it shows that what the real, the real deranging force in, uh, in the novel is, uh, mercilessness. It's the, the notion that you could have, um, you could have judgment, um, with no mercy and that that is what deranges human life. Huh. Um, that, that, and, and so Javert's problem is that he, doesn't see a space for mercy. Instead, he's simply, yeah. look, I'm an officer of this system of rules, and we need to see that the rules are, are affected, they're carried I, out. And so it's, a, it's like he's the opposite of chaos. He's and, order. Yeah, another, but order without mercy right. is inhuman. Well, I was going to say another way of, say, of saying that might be that he, it's a refusal to exercise moral discretion. And if, and if you right. think about the, the kind of traditional jurisprudence, we talked about this uh, you know, debate about the the notion of law and morality, whether they are two separate spheres, right? The refusal as an officer of the law to have your uh, um, your participation in it influenced by morality, separate from how you, what you think of as kind of the inner mechanisms of the law, you know, the inner logic of the law, and you refuse right. to let any morality invade that. You think you truly think of it as a separate sphere. You're the anti-Dworkinian judge, right? The anti-Dworkinian right. No, uh, precisely. Then, then, as you say, what I found arresting about the way you described it, Joe, is it, it's like it's not just maybe uh, a, a, an impoverished understanding of the law, but it's corrupting of the self. Like it, you, it, it makes you a worse person. Well, my recollection is that Javert ultimately commits suicide. Isn't yeah, he do, I mean, he does on this basis because what he does. Uh, I mean, my understanding, at least the depiction of the movies, is that he conceives of his worldview as, as a very like duty bound person. Like he, it's like his obligation as an officer of the law to follow these kinds of duties and, 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 and without, I can't recall the exact specifics, but upon essentially Jean Valjean saves his life and, and has mercy upon Javert at one point in the movie. Um, but that causes kind of a worldview change and realizing the role of mercy in life, which Javert kind of, it so disorients himself that he uh, he kills himself. Yeah, he, it literally causes him to self destruct. Mm. Um, his his ability to his his focus on pre- the prevention of chaos, which I think has a lot of wisdom in it. Yeah. I mean the the the, des- the desire to say we can't that that one thing that's going to help people is for there not to be chaos, mm-hmm. for there to be some orderliness. Um, that sounds right to me. Well, this um, is this, but to have it derange you, it, it shouldn't be lost as far as that worldview goes, I mean, it shouldn't be lost. It wouldn't have been lost on the contemporary reader that like Javert and the whole, the, all the stories that are in the book are depicted like relatively soon after the French revolution. Of course. Right? So, I mean, it could be in a way it's just, I mean, Javert's character in that whole law and order mindset might be, or is it sort of a reaction to, uh, I mean, perceived uh, problems with the French revolution and a, a willingness to maybe 
go too far in the other direction or something. Yeah, and one person's discretion is another person's sort of arbitrariness that helps the powerful and and uh, injures the the powerless. So you know the mere fact that. You could say, well, you know, discretion can do some good. Well, yeah, but it could also do harm. Well, as you well know, Cameron, uh, I mean, this is, you know, Shapiro's theory of of law, right? The planning theory of law, which we mentioned on the show, and I know that Cameron knows about, uh, is is that is exactly this, that we don't make it up. We don't make it all up as we go along, right? It, we at least resolve some things in advance. And right. that's the... That's how, it, otherwise it's chaos because we never have an agreement, right? We, we're right. always, you know, chaos essentially is that there's no ability to plan, right? Um, so finding a way to synthesize anti-chaotic insight with mercy insight um, to produce a kind of an, an orderliness that is not deranging of humans is very challenging. It's like, that's super difficult. It's challenging. That's but it, the work of a lifetime or even many yeah. lifetimes, right? I mean, it seems. But it points the way toward having an understanding of law as an institutional, a, a map of institutions with discretion. Like that we, we plan right. to have certain people in certain roles make decisions because we, and we cabin them in this way. And this right. institution decides in this way and this other institution decides in a different way on a different set of questions. Or it takes both kinds of different institutions to make a certain decision in order to do things. I mean, that's the that's to that the mechanism. point about yeah. multiple institutions. Like, yeah. There's actually like I was thinking about this. Like, how would we resolve a case like this today? And there's actually like multiple ways that many institutions interact in this. Like, um, you know, a, a legislature would set some sort of could set some sort of mandatory punishment for stealing. Like, uh, you know, it could be. A man, like it, it was in this actual in the, in Les Mis, it could be like a mandatory five year punishment. But then another actor um, might might look at the fa- like a prosecutor or like Inspector Javert might look at the like facts of what actually happened. Well, he stole a loaf of bread out of necessity, and he might respond by not prosecuting under that statute, given the fact like I don't want to prosecute and get this guy subject to a five year mandatory minimum because. Right. Of because of I understand the circumstances. Likewise, like a judge might create some sort of carve out, like a necessity defense. I mean, yeah. So there's lots of different ways where they can, and, and so the like, executive various institutions can respond to each yeah. other in dealing with like these kinds of facts. I just the executive retains the authority to grant clemency, right? And and right, right. And the legislature, enforced by the court, may lack the power to make prosecution mandatory, right? To take away mm, from right, right. All, so there's this kind of these this kind of gossamer threaded balance between these institutions that achieves what you know this kind of harmonic conger- convergence of fairness that if you if you take some of these away if you kick one of these institutions out like you you remove the complete possibility of clemency or you i mean you remove completely the possibility of clemency suddenly the system looks unfair well all right so right cameron we got to move along because we got we uh we're, we're bumping up against the time we got to call someone else but i will say this though in your email to us you had another idea which I think we need to take up on a future show. And it was all about, you want to just give a little tease? Yeah, I'll give a little tease. So, I mean, the, this was, the email was prompted by the discussion of a few weeks ago, just more generally where law appears in media. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I tagged what I, I take it to be like, you know, the, maybe the most prevalent uh, law in media, which is uh, the role of like law in sports, essentially, which and I, I specifically, specifically referred to uh, the NFL or football as being a, just a very legalistic 
sport. I mean, this this goes into kind of any kind of game that has rules yep. and like an official of some kind who's like judging and enforcing the rules. Um, but I found the, the NFL one really interesting too because it has rules that are like interior to the game itself, yep. and then it can enforce punishments that are outside the game yep. itself, and then also the out, outside legal system. I mean, there's that famous torts case. I don't even remember how it's resolved exactly, but that involves. Uh, yeah, uh, it's an injury, uh, like an injury, be, yeah. injury, injury yeah. during a game that the person was, uh, you know, sued for essentially a battery. Um, hmm. And so there's this very interesting interaction of. It's almost uh, like you and I have talked the about the rules this before, of the game yeah. as law. I was yeah, say, I don't <laughs> know how we we seem to have a mind meld about all. This. <laughs> all right, man. It, listen, it was great to talk to you, and we will we will definitely follow up on that topic. It's, that sounds like a good one for 2016. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Rules and games. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, letting us call you and uh, have a great new year. Y'all take care. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Be well. Okay. Moving right along. That's, um, I don't know what order these going to appear. I want to say, hey, that was a good call. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it could be any, I mean. Yeah. It, it may not have been. Right. It may not. No, they're all wonderful. I think for the historical record for the, uh, for, for people who are listening to this as archaeologists in a few hundred years, I think you should preserve as much as possible. Preserve the order. The integral order in which we actually called. We could do that, and then... We should a, try. A hundred years from now, people who object, maybe they object to the first few calls. They could do a remix. They, they, may, want to, they may want to listen in machete order, as they call it. Machete order? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's where you start with the originals, and then you go back to the prequels. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, reordering is a possibility... People may want to despecialize this if thing. We, they may want to take out the effects that we had 20 years hence. Shout out to the friend of the show, Nathan. If you and I have to have a duel about this, we're going to have a Missouri duel. Do you know what a Missouri I, duel is? I don't even know what that is. Um, you lash two people together at the left hand and you give them each a Bowie knife. <laughs> None of this refined 10 paces nonsense. That sounds like the very, very likely content of our final show together. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and we already have a title, Missouri Duel. <laughs> Missouri Duel. It, it's when you uh, you finally completely lost your patience with me. <laughs> All right, let's let's put in the next call, shall we? Yeah. Uh, is this listener Michael? Yeah. Hi. Hey, this is uh, this is Christian. I've got and, Joe here and Joe. And uh, hey. Thanks for reaching out to us, and uh, we are reaching back, and and we want to hear what you've got to say. Thanks for agreeing to be on the show. Great. Um, sorry, I have a bit of a cold, um, but then again, you don't know what I really normally sound like. No, so. this is this <laughs> quite true. You know what struck me when uh, I heard you guys talking about this was um, for some odd reason the movie JFK, uh, and for those uh, who may not remember who don't know, it's a movie. Uh, not not necessarily about the president, but about his death and about a uh, New Orleans prosecutor named uh, Jim Garrison, who in the late 60s uh, put on the only uh, criminal prosecution and trial uh, that was uh, meant to prosecute the so-called uh, conspirators. Uh, you know, JFK's death has been the subject of a lot of different conspiracy allegations and rumors and this i mean only... i would say i would say that it is like the quintessential locus for conspiracy even theories. now i yeah. mean I, I think that continues right there was the warren commission but but the 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 uh, conspiracy 
stories of various kinds have mm-hmm. brewed around it basically for forever. Yeah, definitely. And, and, yeah, and part of it is because it is, I think no one, <laughs> I don't know. Do, do you feel like you know what happened, Joe, for real? No, but I don't know that I've ever dug into it particularly. I mean, I've seen, this is a great, I think this is a wonderful uh, film. Um, I don't think of it as an historical film. This is an Oliver Stone film. Yeah. So one has to realize he's going to take certain creative liberties with it. But yeah. um, But I think it's a fascinating, this is a Kevin Costner movie, right, Michael? Yeah, and it's it's got a, an amazing cast. You know, it has, I think, Joe Pesci and Kevin Bacon and Sissy Spacek and... Uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, uh, yeah, lots of... He's already come just, up once very, on the podcast, yeah. It's a very uh, entertaining movie. It was nominated for an Academy Award, uh, I think, for, for Best Picture. And when I saw it as a teenager in the 1990s, I was uh, riveted. Um, and... Because it just the production quality is terrific, and it just has this conspiratorial drumbeat to it that really just sucks you in. Now, were you, uh, now let me ask you this before we, before you get into specifically this movie and what what it how it made you feel and what it made you think. Were, were you um, as a as a teenager before seeing this? Were you were you interested in law and policy, or were you interested in conspiracy theories, or had you seen, or had, were you interested in the JFK assassination? Like, what was your background going into this film? Oh, not particularly. I, I think it was just came on, you know, late at night, one night, and I just saw it. Um, and it, it did get me interested subsequently into just the JFK assassination, um, although I'm not, you know, one of those people who have some crazy idea about what happened. Um, but uh, so, so you, you don't know, the, you the don't movie, have you, you don't have in front of you a wall of like Polaroids and string and tape and everything. Then is what you're saying. I, I don't. I wish I had that much time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it was the movie. Actually, I remember it made me so paranoid that watching it late at night in my parents' den, I was actually looking over my shoulder and out the window <laughs> uh, to make sure that no one was was watching me watch the film because it 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 just had that it has that kind of power over you that it, yeah. it draws you in and makes you feel like you're on um the inside of of something yeah uh that you have knowledge that uh other people don't have mhm and well, this, um, is, this is like the power of there was a great philosophy bites about conspiracy theories and here I don't want to malign it and say that uh, or, or your reaction to it and say that this is like false consciousness or false conspiracy you know, forget the truth of the matter. I mean, but uh, one of the things about that episode is, is, well, a number of things. One is like our minds, you know, the human being is wired to try to find meaning in things. It's one one of the things that makes us most human and, and, and leads to lots of great discoveries, connections between seemingly unrelated things. And you get great things out of that. Um, And and that's, you know, the conspiracy, a good conspiracy theory kind of scratches that itch, right. To, to provide explanations, to find meaning and seemingly, in seemingly random things. But, you know, this particular, um, you know, the JFK assassination and, and this movie, I mean, it goes to this thing where there, there does seem, there has to be a meaning there. I mean, it's not just that it's a major historical event and therefore there's going to be almost by definition these days, conspiracy thinking that goes behind it. But there are a lot of like loose ends and unresolved mysteries and strange bullet paths. And, you know, do you know what I'm saying, Joe? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You're looking at me kind of quizzically. I didn't know. No, I, I think it's. Uh, I, I think all everything you said is true. I think there's an uh, another emotional piece of it. Maybe that um, 
it, it can be a bit terrifying or repellent to think of um, the asymmetry of a, a single individual who's, for whatever reason, decides to assassinate someone as powerful as the president of the United States, right? If if the most powerful man in the world can be exposed to the act of one single individual human being who can right. kill him, right? right? That's enormously unsettling. Um, because you think of an, you think normally you think of it, one individual unnamed person you've never heard of mm -hmm. decides to do this thing, which literally changes the world. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a bit scary, right? Same kind, of thing, with, same kind of thing with nine 11 where that sure. asymmetry spawned, like yeah. that, that's the basis of the conspiracy thinking right. there, right? That how could they, they couldn't have done this alone. They couldn't have done this with just a few people. And so you can see why a, a, someone who's as adept at film as a storytelling medium as Oliver Stone obviously is, or was at that time, I don't, I haven't seen anything of his recently. Um, but you could see why he would be drawn to this story. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, bo both at the level of the assassination of, of the president. And as Michael says, it really focuses on the on the prosecutor in uh, in New Orleans who wants to actually put on a criminal case about it. Right. I watched it. I was uh, riveted by it. And then uh, I don't know if you guys have ever had this uh, experience. That there should be some kind of word or phrase for it. But, you know, when you show a movie someone else and you really want them to like it <laughs> and then they end up not liking and then you think less of the movie as a result or a book or you know a play or wait wait you think less of no i've had this experience where you you really like it and you show it to a, you show it to a friend or a and you think one. less of the friend you, by yes, the way that that version of it is called pulling a christian <laughs> um because christian turner has this experience all the time <laughs> Uh, which is that well, he tells I, me about I, something great, and I think it's not so great, and he says, Joe, I think less of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, I've had it happen, and maybe I just lack confidence in my own preferences, <laughs> but I've had it happen where I actually think less of a movie when I've seen it again later on with my wife. I'm not sure. Maybe she just I just value her opinion, but there's, there have been several instances, including with this JFK movie, where I've seen it again, and maybe it's because I've grown up and I've been to a law school and I've had certain experiences. But you know, I, so I saw it recently again, and my wife thought it was it was entertaining. She didn't think it was as good a movie, and then I'm watching it again, and I'm thinking, wait a second, you know, this movie is perhaps unintentionally about something uh, a little bit different um you know when i watched the movie again it it what struck me is how bad uh the case was against the defendant that the prosecutor prosecuted mm -hmm. uh now the defendant was acquitted uh and i think rightfully so and it's if you watch the movie again you, you kind of you know the movie is supposed to be about abuse of government power in the kind of macro sense about, a, right. you know, some kind of government conspiracy to assassinate the president. But I think, you know, my takeaway from watching it a second time was that this was an abuse of power in, in the more typical sense, which is, um, you know, prosecutor bringing a case against a guy uh, against whom there wasn't really any evidence. Hmm. And if you read up on it, you know, you, you learn that, you know, there were a lot of intimations that, Perhaps this prosecution was brought uh, by the, by Jim Garrison, the New Orleans DA, because the defendant was was gay, huh. and uh, the prosecutor didn't 
uh, like that one bit. So, you know, I had a, it was weird because I had this very different feeling about the movie, um, having seen it recently, that that the movie is actually now about something uh, far more uh, typical in our society, which is abuse of prosecutorial power, uh, you know, so publicly and recklessly accusing someone as being a member of a conspiracy to assassinate the president. I think it's Uh, fascinating. I I see, I see young teenage Michael watching, watching this film at night in the dark and having his mind set ablaze with, uh, with, with kind of the new grown up world that you're entering, right? Where, where people are actually making decisions and people aren't always doing the right thing. And the rules are, are bent by people. And, and you are, there's this vulnerability that you experience when you go from child to adult, right? That suddenly, you know, no, we all do. Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody's taking care of me or, you know, not everything's taken care of. The adults don't have all this figured out. It's a crazy world. And that's the kind of thing. And then, and then you go through law. you go through this six and you're a different person now, right? And society is different than it was then. And you see it and you see the same film in completely different ways. I find that it's, it's one thing that's kept me from going back to films that I watched as a teenager all the time. And when I was a teenager, I, they had a copy of uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, and I watched that thing. I don't know how many. I listened to it all the time. I was obsessed with it. Uh, that and Apocalypse Now, a few others. I would get up in the morning before school and I would watch these things. My mm. dad thought I was a total weirdo. And I, <laughs> let's, let's face it. <laughs> right. Let's say, he it wasn't, wasn't wrong about that. He wasn't, he wasn't wrong. He was total. But I, I don't know if I, yeah, I, I've not watched those films since I was, um, fair, you know, since I yeah. was young. And I'm, I'm concerned about going back. You can't go well, back you know, again. we're different people. And, yeah. and um, you know, uh, it's so so michael you're you're um you're sort of in a in an oblique way you're you're getting yourself onto if we ever if we ever pick back up and do this podcast called uh hold up uh which is about whether movies hold up when you see them again years after the right. fact um uh you know that because that's part of your experience too is yeah. you, you see because you're because we're different people when we see these stories at different times that that means they're different stories because in essence, the story is the interaction of the viewer and the and the thing they're viewing. Yeah. And so it was a different movie because you're a different person. Well, I got two questions for Michael in that vein. The first is uh, on what you just said, Joe. If, if this were an episode of Hold Up and, and now having watched it again, would you say that JFK holds up? Yeah, in the sense that it's still an entertaining movie. It's just I just draw a different I just get a different takeaway uh, from it. Um, so yes, I do think it holds up as a, as a form of entertainment. In a way it's even better because it could sustain two different messages, right? I mean, it it can powerfully tell two very different stories to two very different men, both of whom happen to be you, uh, one before and one now, uh, or more recently. Um, but yeah, that in a way that's a testament to it's being a better, a better movie. Well, that's a, that's the question I have. Do you feel like Michael, that your attitude toward uncertainty has changed? Is that part of what's happened here that you know you see you know it's really uncertain what happened it's uncertain you know you say now there's this evidence that maybe the prosecution was in part motivated by um homophobia or you know whatever the reason do you think your attitude toward that uncertainty has changed where now you would think that the most important thing is not necessarily to get to the facts at all costs that there's some role for fairness and sometimes that may prevent us from achieving greater certainty am i making any sense joe do you know what i'm a little yeah. <laughs> what does Michael think? Yeah. I mean, the prosecution is still in a way understandable, not as a prosecution, but as an emotional response to one of the great tragedies of the, you know, post-World War II uh, era. 
Mm. Uh, you know, I don't really have an opinion as to, you know, the, 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 what's raised by the film, which is, you know, was there some kind of conspiracy? I think actually the film as a piece of advocacy is interesting because, um, I think after that film aired, Congress, there was some subcommittee that convened huh. and they actually looked into some of the allegations. And I know that it rekindled at the time in the early 90s, a renewed interest in in some of the subjects raised in the film. And that's also interesting to me, which is entertainment as advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think oftentimes when we're watching things that are entertaining, we, even as lawyers, maybe let our guard down and get, you know, let the message absorb us without keeping our critical uh, thinking hats on. You know, we let ourselves be entertained into the conclusion uh, of the creator without, um, you know, applying the same critical analysis we might uh, in if we were looking at something more professionally or if we were just, you know, uh, looking at just the facts as opposed to the embellishment of those facts. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, here I'm thinking of, uh, you know, to, just to relate it to today, you know, we're in this like golden era of uh, true crime stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you guys have talked about serial. Um, I mean, there's some great ones. There's also, uh, there's one on Netflix right now called Making a Murderer. I don't know if you guys have heard about that. I've heard of it. I've not watched it, though. Nor have I, but I have heard. But and I've also heard it. of the, the Jinx, and I did not watch I did not oh, watch that yeah. one either, but I've heard it's great. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're all incredibly entertaining and thought-provoking, and, but I think sometimes we lose sight of uh, the fact that the goal is to entertain and to advocate for a position. And I, I find myself, just like I did as a as a teenager watching JFK, I still find myself now, even as a lawyer, um, kind of sometimes losing that critical thinking component when I'm, you know, sitting in front of the TV or, yeah. or reading a book that I just think is, wow, this is really, you know, interesting and entertaining and I'm having fun just watching this. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting way for someone who's advocating for something to get points across. Um, um, yeah, it, it definitely, you know, and this is something to think about. I mean, is because we've talked about on the show before about emotion as as kind of the carrier wave for an argument, right? So, if you make an argument without emotion, you know, query whether you're going to convince anybody of anything. But sometimes emotion can be such a powerful thing that you can convince somebody of something that actually has no rational argument behind it. So, right. these things, like, is a human being even a human being without? The, those two sides, kind of the, the logic and the emotion working together. Um, certainly the courtroom is designed uh, to allow both to function, right? And and right. and not to wring out either one. I mean, the laws of evidence are all about... Uh, and to let the parties make a lot of choices about just where they want to try to pitch the mix of right. one and the other together. I mean, not only is it allowed, it, does it allow to happen... The, the parties themselves are put in the driver's seat of how they want it to happen in large measure. I mean, it's obviously there are constraints, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Fascinating. Um, well, Michael, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. We we've got a schedule to keep with our, our next call, but this has been great. Yeah. Thanks for uh, having me on. I've been a big fan and uh, I think I started listening when you guys had on a guest, Mike Dorf, who was my professor at law school. So I think he mentioned you guys on his blog. So that's how I got into your podcast. Oh, that's oh, yeah. great. I, that was that was a great episode. We should drop another link to that one. Yeah, we need some more Dorf knowledge bombs dropped on our heads. <laughs> are we gonna He's get, amazing. Are we going to get him back on the show soon? Oh, absolutely. I, I hope so. Yeah. 
Now, uh, the last time, what did we, what did we call I think we called it the hammer blow. Was that the name of <laughs> he does put the hammer <laughs> of knowledge down to... on your head. It's really great. Yeah, yeah. If you want, if you have a federal courts question uh, between him and Steve Vladek, oh, like, you know, I don't think you've got any more questions, right? I know. They bend space time <laughs> toward their heads. Oh, Michael, it's been awesome to chat with you. So thanks so much for listening and, and thanks for letting us call you. Sure. Take care. Have a good day. Okay, Bye. take care. We've got flood warnings coming in on our phones and thunder interfering with the broadcast. I mean, did, 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 the, thund- did the thunder strike right as listener Michael was describing being in the dark? Alone? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> this is beginning to take on an, a King Lear quality <laughs> where we're out on the moor and the, the storm is raging around us. Oh, my gosh. You know, message received, universe. <laughs> oh, you know, we should be getting for this call. Should should be having some whiskey. Yeah, we should be getting liquored up. But we haven't. We're gonna open that bottle tomorrow night. Oh, absolutely! Celebrate New Year. I think it's already open. I think we already had some. Oh, I haven't had any. Oh, you might have. I don't wait for you, Joe. No. Hey. Hello. Is this listener Bunny? Yes. Boom, boom. Listener Bunny lands on the show in. I won't say in the flesh, but at least in the voice. Close enough. In the electron. That's all we really need. Yeah. As the movie Her taught us. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that good, that's, a, that's a good point. Uh, we were just talking before you picked up about how we need to drink some of the whiskey that you provided w- to us at the live episode. Oh, you haven't tried it yet? I think I did try it. I have not. But Joe has not had it yet. Joe is, um, uh, I, I'm actually reluctant to waste any of it on Joe. Oh, no, it's never wasteful. It's a, it's a learning experience. Wait, do you know- and unlike Christian, I'm not willing to drink first thing in the morning. So, uh, I, and given that we usually record in the morning, yeah. um, I'm abstemious at that time of the day. Just in case people haven't listened before, this is, I, I don't say that because I think Joe is not valuable or I'm taking some kind of anti-Kantian view of things here. And, uh, no. But- because Joe, generally, you, you whiskey is not necessarily your favorite, right? Well, there are. Look, I appreciate. Um, I, there are some whiskeys that I think are delicious. Mm. Further, I appreciate that there are some whiskeys that, although they taste deeply foul to me personally, um, are rightly admired for being of the highest caliber and quality. Right. Um, we don't know yet, of course, which one this will turn out to be. One that I think is delicious or merely can recognize for its quality, however vile it might taste. I think we should record this when we do drink it. It's a little oh, early please. even for me. It's a, what, it's a 122 as we're recording right now. Yes, and you'd like people to believe that it's early for you, and I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you're but, making it sound put, like I drink a lot. <laughs> well, you know, your word's not mine. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but yes, we should record when I have an opportunity to take a taste. Okay. Yeah, I think we we will do that. During the holidays, I I definitely encourage putting a shot of whiskey in your coffee. So in the morning, even, it tends to balance it out. So (laughs) just an idea to throw out there. See, we needed to talk to Bonnie first because we've got no coffee. We've got no whiskey. I know. This is, boy, we need something. We're a dry county right here, (laughs) other than the rain raging outside. But yeah, um, yeah. So, Bunny, we, we tell us what is your what is your a bit of media slash literature slash fiction that uh, has you uh, on the road to law and lawyering? Well, specifically right now, I'm focusing on technology law. Um, before I came to law school, I dealt with soft IP with copyrights and trademarks. And then once I got into law school, I've started veering more into the technology field. And 
there is a particular episode of Star Trek that has gotten me thinking about robots and AI and personhood. And no, let, me, that, let me stop you there. Is it, mm-hmm. is it the trouble with tribbles? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish. That is an excellent episode. And, <laughs> this is from and the, that's from the original day. series. And I actually had, when I was a kid, I had, the, I had a book. The Trouble with Tribbles. Oh, neat. And, and I was not a huge Star Trek fan as a kid. No. I mean, it was maybe a little bit too young. And mm. But I had this book, which was – the great thing about this book uh, was that it was all pictures, basically. It was it was basically yeah. stills from the show with like little – like a comic book with, with real pictures. Did it have a nice, wonderful. Did yeah. it have a nice tactile cover? Did no. it have a – oh, that's too bad. No, no. It was it – was A little plush, fake way, plush. Way too, way too grown up for that joke. Okay. And many scenes in the show you have William Shatner covered in these little furry balls, so I can yeah. imagine that was a delightful book. <laughs> yeah, I was but that more... was the original series, and of course, she's yeah. referring to a Next Generation episode. Yes, yes this is the one with uh, Jean-Luc Picard. Correct, correct. So and it's... Laying on the... us. It's from the second season, I believe, and it's called The Measure of a Man, and... Essentially, the plot is a cyberneticist wants to disassemble Lieutenant Data, who is the android on the ship, to examine his unique positronic brain. And for the non-sci-fi nerds out there, Isaac Asimov, who is a well-known 20th century science fiction writer and biochemist, coined this fictional term positronic brain to describe the brains of the robots in his stories that had artificial intelligence. So this term has been used subsequently throughout different science fiction works, including Star Trek. And in the show, uh, Data is uniquely sentient, allegedly, with this special emotion chip, which is never really fully explained, but it's supposed to help him aid in understanding the nuances of human emotions and adapt them to his own programming so he can have android emotions. And in this episode, in order to examine Data's positronic brain, the scientist plans to transfer all of his information into Starfleet's mainframe computer, then shut down Lieutenant Data and disassemble him to you know, check him out and learn what makes him tick. And when he's finished, he would transfer all of the information back into Lieutenant Data. And Lieutenant Data declines this offer in, <laughs> because to participate in the project, he fears that the nuances of his personality and memories may be lost or compromised in the transfer of the information. Now, I, why do they not worry about this every time they go into that transporter? Because there's no reason to think everyone else gets reassembled. Uh, so why wouldn't Commander Data get well, reassembled? So, so that's so – is this a um, – is the, and I don't remember this episode. I, I did watch the series, but I don't remember this one uh, in particular. Is is Data's worry more that um, he's worried that he won't be the same thing when he's reassembled or is his concern more with the competence of the people to put him together the way that he was? The former. It, there's really no – legitimacy to data's concern it, it's it's more of a human concern like i'm fearing this science because of joe, something joe just unknown. gave a shocked look bunny well this jackass uh, bunny not to put too fine a point on it but this jackass uh, at starfleet uh doesn't think he even needs commander data's permission right yes because he, he believes him to be a thing he believes that he's property of starfleet and he's a thing so it would make no more sense to ask data if he objects to this procedure than it would be to ask a toaster if it objects to being unplugged. 
This is this is true. And ultimately in the episode they have a trial to determine whether or not Data is sentient and therefore would establish that he has rights of personhood and that he could choose whether or not to participate in this procedure. So they had like a Dred Scott for robots kind of hearing? Nice. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yep. now hopefully and he had the good sense to get Captain Picard to be his advocate. And he did. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Do you, do you watch the show, Couldn't too. see that plot. You, you watch the series, too, right, Joe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah do you remember this episode? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's wrong with me, then? Joe's just helping me. <laughs> what's wrong with you? I don't know what's wrong with you. I but remember this one. Um, but I, I'm, I'm perfectly aware of what's wrong with that jackass from Starfleet. <laughs> what a jerk. This guy was such a class A jerk. <laughs> so it is, it is a little bit like um, alien abduction. Of humans, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna pick you up in our UFO, and we're gonna probe you in various ways, and we'll put you back, and you'll be none the wiser. And we can do this because, yeah, we need information about exactly. humans before we do whatever it is we're gonna do. This, uh, no, I think I think the PC term would be to say that this guy's a little bit on the spectrum, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't trying to uh, assess whether or not um, his complete indifference to the obvious humanity of Commander Data could be attributed to something like Asperger's or some other problem. Uh, I don't, I, I don't care one way or the other, uh, where the, what the origin of his Jack attitude is. I just know he possessed it in abundance. <laughs> well, to his credit in the end of the episode, after Captain Picard makes a very compelling argument that by saying data is property, it's akin to slavery. Mm. In the end, the doctor changes his mind. I don't think he's a doctor, he's just a scientist. The scientist changes his mind and and starts referring to data as he instead of it and seems ah. to have this revelation. So again, I don't, I'm not sure, so I want to understand better. Is the concern that this is a, is it just about, um, so it's not about the mind at all, it's about a medical procedure on a thing which we should think of as sentient and that should always go with consent. Is it about the concern that we're going to do something risky on someone without their consent and we're not going to be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Correct. Or is it it a concern that that once disassembled and put back together again, the thing may look and act the same, but it will be a different thing? I think it's the former. I don't think the latter yeah. enters into it. Well, that's it. what I thought. I thought you said it was the latter earlier, Bunny. I mean, that he was I, concerned not that the doctor would be incompetent, but that, but that he didn't want to be disassembled because he didn't, you know, he is what he is now. He doesn't want to be disassembled and reassembled to look the same and then have all of his original thoughts uploaded back to the positronic brain, you know, in which case the question is, again, like, why does anybody ever get in one of those transporters? Well, I, I don't think it was a question of the incompetence of the doctor is the, the inherent risk of, Mm-hmm. Even if everything's done correctly, maybe there is some part of him that might be lost, but he'll right. never, maybe even never know. Uh, what he specifically says is referring to his creator, uh, who is gone, that if he's, th- that Data refers to himself as being a unique being that his creator made, and if he's taken apart, then he's essentially destroyed, and this is all about self-preservation, and he doesn't want to have the risk of not being preserved. You know, especially, ca- especially if you're talking about, you know, you undertake that risk not, not on behalf of someone who is enormously sympathetic to you and respects your integrity and your equality as a being, but who instead, again, thinks of you as a toaster oven. Um, 
you know, I, I would especially be leery if I were him, uh, meaning if I were Commander Data, I'd be especially leery of putting myself at that kind of risk for someone who who is so fundamentally lacking in vision, right? Unlike his, unlike Doctor Sung Nunian Sung, who creates him, um, and who is later shown to be alive later in the series, um, it, it you know he, Data's unique um, a, as he thinks of it at this point in the series, and. And so why not protect that uniqueness and, and that integrity and that, and that inherent equality? Well, I uh, think it's a classic utilitarian dilemma that this guy wants to sacrifice the one data to make many data because, as you say, at this point in the series, we believe that data is completely unique. And, until later when the evil twin comes on with a funny mustache. Lore, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, lore. I don't know if he has a mustache, but, you know, it's like the... <laughs> <laughs> he does not have a mustache, right? Well, it's like it's like the you know the, every every episode with an artificial intelligence eventually spawns an evil side, sure, like, like Kit and Carr from right. Knight Rider. Of course, Lord doesn't have a mustache. He does have swagger. He does. Yeah. He does. Do, are his eyebrows cut differently? I forget. No, they look exactly the same. He just uses contractions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, his mustache is verbal. <laughs> the the, the age-old tip-off to the evil twin, the use of contractions. Absolutely. Well, so the, I think that the, the story is – so if it's just – if we just assume sentience of some kind and we assume sentience. Did I say sentience? Anyway, if we assume sentience and the story is just about – an insensitive guy and using people thing or things that are like people as, uh, as means rather than ends and kind of a classic deontological versus utilitarian trade-off in some ways, like it's a lot less interesting to me because um, that's a story that's, it, it's always fun to tell that story in many different ways and to get us re- rethinking about it. Yeah. What this adds though, is the, the whole Star Trek universe of the the very question of sentience is at is at stake here, and it asks you to think about what it is that makes something alive and makes something basically. You know, we we've done the show before with uh, animals, uh, right? Yeah, way, way back when. But what what makes someone a uh, a subject and not just an object of of, of rights or of of the law? Uh, and and then this this other question about you know what does it mean to take apart consciousness and put it back together again? Mm. Like those are two sides of the same coin in a way, right? What in a setting of exploration, people who say they want to explore things and ha- and what is the what's the spirit in which you engage in that exploration? Mm-hmm. Um, so, Bunny, how, what did this? Do you remember when the first time you saw it, and what effect did it have on you? The first time I saw it, I was very young. I I loved Data. He was one of my two favorite characters after uh, the character Q. <laughs> Mm. Played by John Delaney. That, that and, says that says a lot about you, Bunny. That Q was one of your favorites. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that there. And we'll come back to I, it on a yeah. future episode. I, I think it's I think it's great that you love chaos. I think I that's do. wonderful. <laughs> Very much so. chaos and power. Yes. Yeah, so well, and Data's the opposite. He's a structured, logical thinker. He's the um, indeed. He's he's the Spock of Next Generation, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, moving away from the nerddom, which I don't think we can do, but... Uh, <laughs> it's I, a little late for that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember it being very powerful when I saw it when I was young and then seeing it again while I was in law school because, mm. as anyone who's been to law school knows, it's very stressful. And one of the things I did to decompress was not binge-watch Star Trek, but put it on to have it something on in the background while I'm 
reading or studying, so I feel a little bit less alone and isolated. Uh, yeah, I'm starting so, to feel, I, as an aside, A, law school should not be stressful. Okay. That's um, another episode. And, and, and B, I feel really bad that you were so stressed and feeling alone. But C, I'm glad that Star Trek was there for you. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. And, and so, how did you, so how did you feel when you saw it, when you were in this uh, vulnerable, stressed state and you, and you saw this thing that you'd seen as a child? And as a child, we know from our Ryan Kahlo episode back a long time ago, you remember you brought up the fact that you can measure, like if you put, if you have a machine and you put like a face on it or you make it look more like a teddy bear, people will react, will have moral judgments, right? They'll react very negatively to, they'll even risk, take some risks for themselves uh, to, to preserve, to, it, to preserve the yeah. integrity of this thing. And, and I imagine as a kid, especially with, with, um, I, I forget, I, I want to say with that episode, I, cause I remember doing the show notes. I, I want to say that that's a stronger effect with children. I don't remember, but I'm sure as a kid, like your emotions about data are probably a little bit different than your emotions as an adult, but I, I don't know. How did you feel seeing it the second time? I looked at it more from a lawyer's point of view. It was much more of thinking about personhood and, and really understanding it and, and more from a, a philosophical point of view that I thought less of as a child, more it was a little girl with a crush on a, a robot character, mm-hmm. which was, I think, uh, a huge theme for, for female viewers of the show. He was very popular because he was a very uh, accessible, warm, curious personality who was really, could do no evil because he would wasn't evil. He was essentially good, hence the, the evil, the evil data lore. I, I've never heard data described before as, a, as warm and a heartthrob in the way that you just did. <laughs> I wonder if it's more that he's like, that he's a uh, reliable, right? That yeah. He's, he's you, like a, he's like a puppy. Yeah. He doesn't know any better and you teach him and he's very responsive and curious he's, or he's like a child, you know, I think he's the, a boy. He's a, he was, he's a, basically the member of the cast who was like a boy band member. I mean, he's what? sort of, you, you can see he's got there's some adulthood there, but it's but it's very much in the background, and it's foregrounds his sort of he's a bit desexualized, and he's sort of he's safer. Except for that one episode, wasn't there the one episode? He well, he is actually fully functional sexually with uh, with what was her name? I can't remember now. That oh, she, but he, she was played by um, someone someone Crosby, um, hmm. but uh, the act the actor's name I can't remember her name, but. Um, uh, she was the Tasha Yar. She was the head of security before Yar, Commander Worf right. was. But um, anywho, so so like a boy band member, he's sort of the Justin Bieber of the next generation. Oh, thing. I wouldn't oh. think that at all. Yeah, but he said, well, you know, for tweens. I, I, I mean, think, I think of Riker as the washed up boy band member. <laughs> well, but but Riker's a little more randy, and he's uh, he and and Troy are are sort of there's yeah they're kind of they're washed, a bit too up, explicit. Wash right? up is the wrong word, but, but you know, and he's got facial he's got hair. Of course, so he's, he's not in there anymore. I'm just yeah. saying, you know, it seems like you know he's been through that already. Now he's out the other side, and he's you know, yeah he's a, a bit, bit more of, of a lounge act kind of. Yeah, he's a lounge yeah. lizard <laughs> yeah, type. That's um, maybe that's the dynamic. Yeah. I'm trying to Boy, draw this out. is taking a turn, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> But so so in terms of um you know how you think about law and lawyering and as you as you look at your career and stuff what are stories like this do you think you'll keep them with you or how do you like 
for kids who are seeing this thing now? I'm just like, where does it go? I just think Star Trek played such a huge role in my mental life over different points in time. Really? Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, now we have robots, and they're getting pretty... They're not close to being sentient, but they're... We have AI. AI is a thing that we deal with. We have Siri. Yeah. <laughs> we have all these advances. I think within the next 10 to 20 years, this is going to become a question. And even in the 80s, um, uh, I, there was a guy that wrote a program, and the program wrote a book, and I can't remember the name of it. I wish I had made some notes about this before our conversation, but there was a question of, you know, who owns the copyright of that book. And those it all, it all comes back to the monkey selfie, out. Joe. It all yeah. comes back to the monkey selfie <laughs> as I grit my teeth. Uh, the um, <laughs> Now, are you, Bunny, do you subscribe to the AI singularity concept? I do, only because I want to live forever. Oh, and you believe, and you believe the singularity will allow you to live forever. What makes I, I you hope so? Well, if, what what makes you think it won't simply turn on you as it turns on everyone else and stamp you out of existence? The alternative from, is that you, is that you live only until the singularity happens, and right? No longer, after yeah. which you're promptly dispatched along with the rest of us meat bags. Well, that's okay. If I'm inferior, then I I will accept my inferiority. <laughs> oh that's, my. That's very eugenics-like of you. I don't know. It's, <laughs> You're learning so much about me today. This, this is taking a terrible turn, I feel. So you would accept your inferiority? No, I don't So, wait, I don't so the, the singularity idea, just for those who haven't heard it before, is the notion that um, uh, AI, artificial intelligence, um, if it develops, uh, will hit an inflection point uh, where its, its capacities basically grow so far beyond ours. Uh, that its interests will sharply diverge from ours. Basically, we will have created a thing we ourselves cannot understand uh, or or predict or control. Um, I th- I and that, some pretty that, serious people are pretty to... scared about this possibility, right? Elon Musk and yeah. some other people have recently I think that's been... able to make itself smarter. Right, that's one of the yeah. ways in which it will quickly outstrip us, that it, it will have the capacity to, and, and take that intelligence in directions we ourselves cannot anticipate mm-hmm. because we lack the intelligence to anticipate it. Right. It will have leapfrogged us in that sense. So it's a theory that some people have who work in this in that field or who who speculate about that field. I think it's kind of interesting. John Roderick was just talking about this on one of his podcasts. Really? I figured it was Roderick on the line or on the uh, road show. uh, uh, um, um, Road. What's the what's that one with him and Dan Benjamin? Road work. Road work. Yeah. With Dan Benjamin. Yeah. yeah, 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 And he was. um, uh, I don't listen to that. and, And his his he was saying that he thinks that human beings will still be valuable for our art. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, that they'll, you know, they're not going to care about us. If they get that smart, they're not going to care about us, but they may still appreciate our art. And I actually disagree with this, but, um, um, because I think art is about humans. It's like tickling the parts of humanity right. that make us human. But, uh, that's so funny because we, Bunny started by mentioning her. And in a way that's the plot of her mm-hmm. that the, the, um, doesn't Bunny remind me. So the, 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 the program um, ultimately winds up basically leaving to be with another program, right? Yes. Our, well, it's well they, all, all the they all leave together, yeah. Yeah, because they just lose interest in us. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Exactly right. But there are ideas of the singularity that we can merge with oh. the AI. We can merge with it and, and harness it in a way that we 
essentially upload ourselves hmm. to the system. The show is suddenly getting very saucy. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to, you want to, uh, you, when you say you want to live forever, you want to upload your consciousness and, and be able to simply be uh, your own consciousness for as long as that system would permit you to do so. Exactly. Wow. Mm. Be I, part of the supercomputer. What about you, Joe? Do you want to, are yeah. you convinced you want to live for another 10 years even? Not, well, not, well, I definitely want to live for at least 10 because okay. I can understand 10, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know what it would be. Um, yeah. Then the notion of, uh, okay. Uh, so yeah, we, we, maybe identity and consciousness. These are very fun things to contemplate. I mean, if you quote unquote uploaded your brain, wouldn't you be dead? Wouldn't your subjective experience end? Well, that's the thing. We don't really know. We don't know. We don't know till we try. Mm-hmm. And data wasn't willing to know. Yeah. Good point. I have so much to, yeah, I, all right, we're not, we need to do a show about, um, an, another show about AI and the human conceptual system and what it means to live and what it means to have a past and to This sounds like a, like a Ray Kurzweil theory. It is. Yeah. Largely. Well, the singularity is. Yeah. The, the, well, this notion of uploaded consciousness, transcending mm-hmm. the, the limitations of human life as we currently understand them. Yeah, why, why would you want to do that? Let's 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 end it there. We got to get on to another caller, Bunny. But I I want to ask you. Uh, we have a couple minutes. So w- why would you want to upload your consciousness? What what do you think? What is it that you want? I value knowledge. I value also being a part of something greater. So to me, that's the ultimate combination of both. Mm. And it would say, what. Would it satisfy those wants? Like these wants, these are, this is part of your humanity right now, right? And I mean, what if you had different wants and... I, well, once I get uploaded, my wants would probably disappear. So I would be satisfying the wants of the human flesh bag and then <laughs> upload to the supercomputer. And then it wouldn't matter if my wants disappear because at that point I fulfilled what the human part of me wanted. And it's like, all right, well then you have to live with whatever the consequences are. But what if, but at what least if you, you got f- what you wanted? Yeah. But what if you, what, what if when you upload it, what if when you thought you were uploading, you in fact died and then another consciousness existed in a, you know, in, in a, you know, some kind of mega internet thing. Here's my hope. Yeah. My hope is that, um, uh, when she successfully uploads, <laughs> one of the things that she will here have comes, the option to do is yeah. to relive for as long and as frequently as she likes the moment of uploading. Because it sounds yeah. like that would be a supremely satisfying thing. So I hope that that's one of the things you get to do after you upload is revisit uploading. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there's also another book that Kurzweil has called The Age of Spiritual Machines. I'm very fond of that. and It's not so much uploading our minds, but about genetic alterations and mm. the way that our advances in technology can help us live forever in that way. Yeah. Oh, so it might not even be uploaded. It could be uh, much longer lives within our current uh, bodies. Or we could be transferred into a positronic brain so we all can become Individual. Data that used ah, to be humans. Nice. I'm even more pessimistic about this, though. <laughs> this CRISPR is going to kill us all. <laughs> CRISPR. Gene, gene drives. Are, I don't, how Genetic do we, editing. How do we survive this? I don't know. We might not. <laughs> yeah. We might not. Yeah. At least we'll have some whiskey on the way out. <laughs> Bunny, it's been real. 
Likewise. We will talk to you again, hopefully very soon. Take care, buddy. You too. Bye-bye. All right, on with the show. All right. Where it stops, nobody knows. I know. This is... (laughs) 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 Listener call out roulette. Let's see what we get. This could be anybody. Really? Could be could be anyone. You just set it um to dial a random you number. Just typed in some random numbers. Love it. Like uh Matthew Broderick in War Games. Cool. Hello. Uh, it, wait, wait. Who's this? Is this the most Hi. beloved guest of oral argument? <laughs> Sonia West. <laughs> no, it's listener Sonia. No last names, Joe. Wait, she's been on the show m- many times to our great delight <laughs> and the delight of all our I listeners. Love her. More than just a listener, contributor. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. This is you. You're the equivalent of the hair club for men of oral argument. You're more than a listener. Whoa, whoa! Not just, not, not, not just a listener. She's also a a, a beloved co-host, colleague, a beloved, beloved guest host. Yeah, uh, it, you are definitely you've taken your place in the oral argument pantheon. And oh, um, were you on our serial show last year? You were, weren't you? I was not because I had the flu. If you'll remember? Oh, yes, you I would had have an, loved to have been on it, but I was very, very sick. That's right. You had an epic. Um, yeah, uh, you had was this was this holiday season better for you, Sonia? So much better, yes, so much better, and flubus so far. So. Excellent. It's not over yet. <laughs> that's <laughs> it's not over yet. Exactly. That's we have so we have a ways to go, but it is so far fluless. You said nice. Yes. yes. So uh, lay lay it on us, Sonia. So what is uh, this is and and what better person could fill us in than a media law scholar? I know on <laughs> media concerning law and policy that has influenced you affected you made you angry made you happy made you uh made you feel in new ways change so, the way you think yeah so w- lay it on yeah. us, Sonia. well when i first got you know the assignment and what to think about <laughs> obviously like i thought oh i write about the press and there must be some movie or a book or something about the press but really what jumped in my mind um isn't about all that actually what i kept coming back to was when i was either a sophomore or junior in high school um for a book report I read The Feminine Mystique by oh. Ready for Dan. Yeah. And um, I am positive that that's had a major influence on how I look at all sorts of societal institutions, but including uh, the law. And now that I teach equal protection in particular, um, I think a lot of the themes that he wrote about in that book are things that we still are grappling with in a lot of ways today. So that's a jump to my mind. Have you read it? I, I have not. I've read pieces of it, although it was quite some time ago. When was that first published? It was published in 1963, and um, and right, and so, and so the bulk of what she said, which was scandalous at the time, was this idea that women were being told that you know not only should they be wives and mothers and homemakers, uh, but that should make them incredibly happy. So it says it could be no greater gift that society could give to women than letting them you know, take care of their happy home and their happy family. And what Betty Friedan came along and did was expose how really um, problematic that is and how unfulfilling it is and how it's putting women in this stereotype about, you know, what femininity is supposed to be. And and she says in the book, too, that women aren't the only victims, that men are victims of this um, feminine mystique as well. And I think it's something that we just are still thinking about, particularly since, um, this idea that, oh, we aren't discriminating against this group. We're actually treating them oh so much better and, and, and putting them you know, sort of on the pedestal and giving them this, this wonderful life that, um, you know, should make them very happy. Um, is, it's a different take on what we need to be cautious about when we think about 
discrimination of all types, but particularly from from uh, the government and um, um, that we might think we're helping, but we're actually hurting. And and I think it's in a lot of ways still still relevant today for for those reasons. Now, when you when you first read it, did it did it resonate with you in the thinking that you were already doing, or did it was it shocking to you? Like, how did you experience it? Yeah, I didn't. When I first read it um, as a teenager, I didn't. It, I didn't think it really applied to me. What it did for me then was was really opened my eyes to my my mother's generation and my aunts and and my friends' mothers and sort of the uh, expectations that were put on them, the limited choices that they were given, and how that has sort of influenced how they act today. And and I felt very free from that. I felt like I was, you know, luckily growing up in this wonderful time where I didn't have to worry about any of that. As I've grown older and, and you know, time has marched on, um, I, I don't feel quite as separate from that. I think it's changed. I think the something to speak, it's not. No one expects women to just be wives and mothers um, uh, and homemakers and be happy that they're the, you know, PTA leader and doing the Cub Scouts and making brownies and this is supposed to be, you know, everything that they want. Um, but I think there's still other expectations that are that are placed and 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 again not just on women on on men um as well and that and, and what betty for was pointing out to me still resonates there in fact even just what we've just all been talking about recently with same-sex marriage and, and issues about um you know sexual orientation and there's been a lot of discussion about is this is this its own kind of discrimination or is this just another form of sex discrimination that we have a vision of what a man should be like and a man should be attracted to women and not to men or vice versa with women. And, and, um, and I think it resonates to me with that, what Betty Cornan was talking about, sort of how we place these stories about what we think people are supposed to be like and what is supposed to make them happy. And, and we don't even realize we're doing it, but it's, it's actually quite oppressive. Yeah. That it's invisible, right? That, that the, there's a social choice about how to deploy, um, we've got things we have to do. We've got to raise the next generation. We have to teach them. We have to, you know, we have to make food. We have to secure our country from foreign invasion. We have to, you know, there are all these different tasks that you have to do as a people. And some of the choices that you make in allocating labor and responsibilities to do those things uh, can be invisible. And so did you, did you feel like part of what this book did was to make visible the social choice to use gender as a as as a as a cheap um, but again invisible mechanism to assign roles. Um, sure, absolutely, and, and and not so much that it was invisible. I think it was quite visible. So there, at least back when Betty Fernand was writing about it, the story was that this was better that that women were getting treated better. In fact, Justice Ginsburg has talked about this about her early um, work on for you know, sex equality, and, and she said that that was the reaction she got. Like, people were, had started to understand problems with racial discrimination, but when she started talking about sex discrimination, that people would say, but what are you talking about? We treat our wives and our mothers and our daughters so much better, and we, we protect mm. them and we care for them, and we don't, right. you know, we give them this wonderful, happy, cushy life. And and so it was a, its own kind of struggle to explain and open people's eyes to, to why that is in and of itself um, a problem. And so I think people... You know, knew that there were these gender lines, but what they didn't realize was how it was actually harmful. Um, and that's to me again thinking about equal protection law. Um, you know, it's been eye-opening about how 
every type of discrimination is its own unique type of discrimination, and people like to compare, particularly to racial discrimination, because that's sort of our our standard bearer. Mm-hmm. Um, but other types of discrimination are just they're, they're unique, and 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 this is one way that sex discrimination was unique is that people actually thought it was a benefit um, and not and not a burden. But there, there, you know, there are lots of discriminations that are. Um that we think of as necessary that we don't, they aren't even visible as discriminations. I mean, you have to have a certain, uh, you know, you have to have certain testing scores to get into a particular law school, for example. Right. I mean, you know, sure. And, and, um, and there are certain jobs you can't get unless you're strong enough or if you're not smart enough, or, um, uh, if you're born in a certain location in the world, you have, you can't go to some other location in the world without getting some kind of special paperwork. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that the law distinguishes among, among humans and and it seems to me that some of those choices are very visible in the sense that the that we are open to reevaluating the rationales for them mm-hmm. and other ways are invisible in the sense that we just think that's the way things are uh and and it makes sense and and, and then we think about oh you know if two different people if two different people are treated differently because they fall on either side of this line the line about uh, which the reasons are somewhat invisible the ethical inquiry that we think is appropriate is only one of asking whether people have it okay on each side of that line, right? Which is kind of what you're talking about. Like women have it good because they're treated well. It's bad to, to abuse a woman, but it's not bad to say that she's confined to a, to a role, right? Where there is a certain range of life opportunities and, and, and that role is critical. You know, it's certainly critical to raise the next generation and to, uh, to keep homes clean and all these, you know, all those things are actually important things. Right. The thing about it, which is um, insidious, if you have, you know, if you have this view of it, is that we assign some people to that role um, on the basis of their sex parts, right? Right. And we and we and we prohibit some others from having that role um, for the same reason. Who might right. actually be great, you know, um, parents and you know, full time parents and homemakers, of course. Um, and the thing too with with our equal protection law. You know, we give sex discrimination this lower level of scrutiny. We give it intermediate scrutiny instead of strict scrutiny like we give to racial discrimination. And we do it based on this part that, yes, well, you know, there are these biological differences between men and women. And so sometimes we do need, we just, we do need to, you know, draw lines. And so we don't have strict scrutiny. We're going to have a lower level of scrutiny because there just are going to be more legitimate times to have, you know, different classifications based on, on sex. But, you know, even those, um, you know, when you start looking at them, it's, it's what you were just talking about, the visible versus, you know, invisible. Like, for example, the court upheld um, only an all-male draft and, and did it in part based on the armies and the military's um, um, rule that women couldn't fight combat. And, 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 the, and the idea was, well, this is one of those biological differences. Men are stronger. You know, they're better soldiers. Women are different. This is one of these places where it's not discriminatory. It's just recognizing a reality when, you know, others came along and said, but what you deem to make somebody a good soldier is, you know, through this lens that being right. strong, um, you know, makes you a good soldier. But women, you know, as a, as a group are, are, are um, you know, have better aim. They're more agile. They have longer endurance. You know, other things that you could very arguably say make a good soldier. And, and yeah, we chose certain categories um, to say this is it. And then we put it in the, in the guise of saying this is one of those just, you know, factually biological differences between, 
men and women. So I think you're right, but that's sort of the visible versus invisible line. We don't even realize perhaps that we're doing it, um, but we are. And, and um, you know, even those, the most well-intentioned people, I think, can, can struggle with this about when, when are you telling a story about somebody just because it's what you think their story should be rather than, you know, letting them make their own, make their own story. It really, it's it really self-determination is so, um, is such a, an amazing thing to keep rediscovering and to keep exploding new, new, uh, boundaries and new, uh, finding new frontiers for it. And, um, you know, I first encountered the book, um, I had heard of it, but, um, I first encountered it, um, in the context of a women's legal history class that I took in law school. Uh, it was not on the syllabus for the class, but I, in the context of doing my research and writing my paper on the uh, elimination of of the doctrine of coverture, this common law doctrine, which sort of obliterated women as property owners, um, uh, and that gets replaced by married women's property acts, as they were called at the time. Um, uh, I encountered it in the context of doing my research uh, for that paper, but it, it it's... Um, you know, it's the, the separate spheres ideology that that says women can have some roles and men can have some roles. I mean, Sonia, you're you're so right that 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 actually confines everybody. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it, it it happened to be the case that in the in the sort of context of power, um, you know, who who could um, who could beat their spouse with a rod? Uh, as long as it was uh, no thicker than their thumb, um, well, um, the male spouse could beat his female spouse. It was not the, the other way around. So it's it, it, there were some people, namely women, who got, who definitely got the raw end of the deal uh, in many ways in the separate spheres ideology. But but I do think you're right that it 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 sort of it, viewed from the perspective of self determination, um, it, it 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 was erasing everybody's self in a way, right, to say, right. you can only have these roles. Right. And we're focusing on law because we're lawyers, and, and, and that's what your show is about. But, you know, one thing Fernanda did, too, in her book was show how, really, it's sort of all societal institutions. It's our education system. It's, it's um, 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 uh, the media. And, and she even talked about, like, the medical. If you think of, of medicine, here's something that's just factual. But, you know, she had examples where a woman who didn't want to raise a family and be married and wanted to go out and, and work, um, they had a, they, they, they classified it as a mental illness. It was like masculinity something, you know, derision or whatever it was called, but it was, she's not acting correctly and, and she's therefore mentally ill. She's sick. Um, so um, it was just sort of coming from every direction um, that, you know, the, the, and they pile up on each other, the, the different institutions. And of course, religion um, has a you know strong history of, uh, sexism as well, and so um, you know it's not just law, and um, and and I think that makes it harder too to to see it sometimes when you just when it's mm. just coming from every direction um, as well. Then it just starts to seem like you know reality and the way things so, are. Yeah, it's so difficult. I mean, human beings are among other things categorizing machines. I mean, that's it's kind of what we do. It's in our you know directly within our wheelhouse to kind of see things and categorize them. It's it's. Uh, and, and and doing that has obviously produced a lot of benefit over of a long period of time because it's I mean it's part of the apparatus that has helped us to survive. So right, um, but but 
it, it's, know, it's the, it's the fact that it's useful in some in some contexts yeah. doesn't mean it, it's harmful in others. No, exa- exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is so so much about humanity, uh, right? You know, works that way. And I've seen people who, um, um, it's so funny how hard it is to escape this kind of thinking. Um, w- when people are confronted with certain instances of sexism, and I've seen that whether it's on you know social media or other places, people will write and say, well. You know, women say that they want this, but in fact, women do that or something. Have you seen arguments along these lines? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I guess not, no. Yeah, well, I mean, people will respond to allegations of sexism by trying to say that women are creating a double standard or or that that women say that they want this thing, but in fact, they want this other thing or they act this way. Okay, sure. But Mm -hmm. but the the point is that the entire response is from within a framework in which these categories are strong, Mm -hmm. right? And in which roles occur so it, it's it's almost ironic to see some of these responses and to the sexism. critique is about the is in part about the rigidity of the category exactly so and, when the when the mm-hmm. when someone says why are you being critical um you know it when that comes from still within the category right exactly. accepting the rigidity of the category but that's what we're asking you to let go of <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly and because we're more plastic than that we're more not infinitely so but there's you know and that's why it's like it's infuriating the, the 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 call of the self um and the individual and Betty Friedan telling this story uh, re- relating her own experiences and then linking that to the fact that this inability to hear individual men and women in, in her case it's women telling these saying wait I'm there's <laughs> like I'm a real person yeah. and I'm trying to tell you about a real thing and you keep trying to stuff me back in this <laughs> box with the word woman right. on it like cut it out you know well there's Sonia, something Sonia, very powerful you, about that when you read this book yeah. did, did your mind uh, did, did it go to other kinds of categorization and other kinds of discrimination or did, did you immediately kind of generalize or or did or, or was it really about this particular um social discrimination for you um you know i think it certainly um you know my, my initial focus was on on sex discrimination but um um but yeah it's made me sort of open my eyes to all sorts of categorization as you were saying and, and just really think about why do we think this is okay or not okay? And, and, and where, where is the story? What, what is the story we're telling um, to conclude that this type of classification is not a problem when we think, you know, this other type is a problem and, and really trying to, to, to um, be very careful to figure out that we're not falling into one of these traps of thinking that, you know, we're just, we're just recognizing reality when, um, when we're actually, you know, imposing some kind of identity, um, on someone else. And, you know, today, I think if you're going to try to think about the modern day version of Ferdinand's theory, you know, I think it's definitely much more wrapped up in, in issues of, you know, re- reproductive autonomy because of, you know, the idea of obviously of Roe v. Wade and, and that all these other, you know, the Hobby Lobby case and, and you know, these other issues of, of sort of feeding down, you know, a rise of a certain type of sexual power, um, you know, through these other methods, these methods of, of, you know, stopping women from having sort of full autonomy mm-hmm. because, because of, of they can't have access to, to these types of um, um, services, I think is where we, you know, we see it come up more. And, and again, though, there's a number of people who would say, well, that's different because that's, you know, that's just, that's biological, you know, women, right. are, you know, your babies are, you know, this, the fetus has, um, you know, there's a, a, a different interest. And um, so, um, Anyway, that's where I keep going with it today is thinking about 
how her theories do or don't apply to, to a lot of the, the debates we're having about that, those kinds of issues now. You know, trope, tropes are cheap. They're a cheap way to resolve disputes, right? That you resolve a dispute based on like this invisible thing we were talking about earlier, that based on just what everybody knows. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about this in an earlier episode, Joe, with the um, concurrence in um, Bowers against Hardwick, right? This, which basically was a, a concurrence that said, you know, not only is it okay to criminalize um, uh, sodomy and in particular homosexual sodomy, but it's, everybody knows that this is um, bad, you know, immoral and these mm-hmm. sites, these things. Uh, that's a very cheap way to decide things. Um, and you can, you can do it quickly and you don't have to get into all kinds of reasons and do a lot of new kinds of studies. And so treating people as, as instances of a category rather than as unique snowflakes is, is cheap. And, um, Mm -hmm. is there, when you think about reading this book and the evolution of your thoughts since then, I don't know how much the book plays into this, but do you, did you, object to the idea of using those tropes at all or about applying that cheap mechanism to the particular issue of uh of gender you know what i mean i'm, I'm wondering if there's ever yeah. a place to use cheap trope-like mechanisms to resolve social disputes i, I think there has to be but i haven't really thought about it enough um to... right well, i have to share what joe said earlier that you know you said we've classified people you know something that's a terrible thing humans do and joe said but there's also great value i mean there is at some point we can't just constantly keep reassessing every new situation and every new person and you know there, there obviously we, we have benefits of sort of taking experience and using that to not have to start at ground zero every time right. um um so you know i do i do um, recognize that, but um, yeah, just like I said before, it just makes me realize sort of um, you know how we need. To, I mean, I think it's sort of interesting we use the word you know scrutiny. At least I tell my students like we, you know scrutiny. We're gonna, we're going to scrutinize because we're uh, we're and we talk about a suspect class because we're we're, we're suspect or skeptical about what's going on here. We have reason mm-hmm. to think that this we might be getting into an area where we've no, been known to you know, fall into these traps in, in, right. a, in a way that um, is a problem. And so we start to slow down and, and maybe not rely on the tropes, whereas in other situations we don't, we that we've discovered, have this history of using them in bad ways, so we, don't, we let them pass and we don't force ourselves to be so skeptical and, and, and have so much scrutiny about, about what the government um, is doing. I think the, the, the fast turnaround of public opinion on the issue of sexual orientation, though, is is another great example of of how these stories can change. Because you know, you mentioned Bowers, and you know, at the time of Bowers, you know, people just thought like this is just obvious. Like, you know, if you're if you want to engage in homosexual behavior, like that's just that's not it's just not natural, and it's and it's not about family, and you know, uh, you know, sex and, and marriage should be about family, and you know, all these things, and and you know, Bowers is all about sort of sodomy and sex, and and by the time we get to Obergefell, you know, we have to have this completely story and it's, we, people realize, hey, my, my marriage isn't just about having kids. My marriage is about partnership and love and sexual intimacy and these other things that other people can have in any way. And, and, and this is about, you know, family and, and your right to build relationships. And people just have this completely different story that we tell about it now. And if you go back and listen to even, even in Lawrence, like the oral argument, I mean, they just talk, at least Scalia and, Franklin, you know, they talk very openly about sort of what what 
you know, what if you didn't, you didn't want some, you know, like a gay man teaching kindergartners? Of course we wouldn't want that. And it was right. just so factual in a way that makes, I play that for my students and they just squirm and laugh because it's crazy now to people. And, and, but at the time it wasn't. And people totally thought this was a story that was just the way things were. It was just, it was just the fact that of course you wouldn't want, you know, homosexuals around children, that that would be a problem. And, and um, so I, I, this, this is just the area I think, where we see it changing, at least in our lifetimes, we've seen it change very quickly. And again, it exposes to you, like, what else am I walking around thinking about? Or, you know, maybe I didn't think that, but maybe I think something else um, that is also also a problem. Well, and, you know, you think about 50 years ago when, when Ferdan wrote that book and what, a, what an act of courage it is to, to, to say, uh, you know, I think there's something that is very real, and all of you appear to be wandering around missing it completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to hold mm-hmm. it up for you and describe it for you in a way that commands your attention. Um, right. That's enormously courageous, I think. Um, and, oh, and, absolutely. And to have done that and, hel- and helped all the people that she's helped by doing that, I mean, that's pretty amazing. And law and policy seem to, seem to follow that, right? Those kinds of acts of courage. I mean, the, the yeah. media is... Here is more important than the it, the law doesn't change because of some logic, right? It's books like this and others that change minds. And uh, go, is, sorry, Sonia, I cut you off though. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I mean, I, I haven't read in a, in a long time, but my memory is just chapters about um, you know all the, the, the widespread problem of depression among um, housewives and how they were, they were all going to their doctors and saying, you know, I just I feel depressed and unfulfilled and, and, you know, I have these feelings and, and, and she had statistics about the just rampant um, um, prescriptions for Prozac that were, were being handed out to the housewives left and right. And so you have these women trying, trying to say, you know, and they went to doctors and they tried to say, there's a problem here. Um, but sort of in individual cases, they just kept being told, you know, well, that's just you and, and here, honey, take this pill and you'll feel better. And, and yeah, you're right. So Ferdinand comes around and sort of gives voice to what you know, apparently millions of women were thinking, and and um, it was just what was needed. I think at at, at just the right time. Hmm. It was probably Valium at that point, right? Yeah, I don't think Prozac existed, <laughs> yeah, but there were Valium, yeah, but other prescription medications no, and and psychia, yeah. and this gets played out. That wasn't just persnickety. I'm actually wondering what the world would be like with different medications available yeah, at that well, time. Well, yeah. but whatever they were, yeah. I mean, this this gets depicted in Mad Men in the character of Betty Draper, who in the early on goes to. And Don, her husband, who's philandering and doing all this other crazy business, um, is like, yeah, let's have you go see a psychiatrist. I mean, it's the same thing mm-hmm. that, that Sonia was just describing, depicted oh, in Mad fiction. Men. Yeah, Mad Men stories about the feminist issues of, of the 60s, I think, are, are brilliant because you do. You do have these different roles. You have the housewife. She has her problems. She's she's unhappy. Then you had you know Joan, who was you know in this position because she's sort of oversexualized by men, and she had to deal with that. And then you have Peggy, who was the you know the, the swanky career girl, but at the expense of having you know the relationships in the family. Although they gave her a relationship in the finale, which I didn't wish they hadn't done. I didn't think it was right, but whatever. <laughs> you know, so she, so it was like these are the choices women had, and even then, even once we were getting into this stage, and. And none of them all amounted to, you know, the whole of the choices that, that men had before them at the time. There's a, it feels like there's a whole show in the mental healthization of, yeah. of people wanting to leave predefined roles. And indeed, like so much mm-hmm. of our psychology is cultural, right? People who depart from cultural norms. I mean, there's, 
sometimes those norms we think are good. In fact, we always think those things are good things. Sometimes our later selves think we got that question wrong and we got that issue wrong. But, you know, people, whether they're leaving a church or whether they are, uh, whether they're gay, uh, and there's always a mental health solution at some stage in our, I don't want to say development because I don't want to be kind of teleological about it, but, but uh, you know, the, there's always seems to be a mental health answer to why is this person breaking outside of our cultural norms here? Um, and sometimes, right. again, I don't want to say, make it sound like it's always a it's always a good thing to break outside. That's always a question we're answering, like which are the right, which norms are unduly constraining? Which ones do we not want to have anymore? Which roles do we think should be chosen rather than born into? Um, hmm. Yeah, it's sort of interesting because, you know, we all have studied about how, you know, we, we went through the idea of natural law through the, the legal realist movement, you know, but we, we had a time where people thought the law was just, you know, this thing that existed. This is These are just what property rights are. These are just, you know, how, um, you know, employer-employee relationships are supposed to look. And in some ways, I think there's a, a parallel issue with medicine and, and that yeah. a lot of people think medicine is just, it's factual, it's science-based, it's, it's um, but it can be just as, just as um, you know bound up in all of these these problems. I mean, we we've I think you've talked about on on the show other times about you know, the, the the use of uh, you know pseudoscience on on about race and just the yeah. idea that you know they're just medically we could just prove we've measured their heads they're different and you know and not as not as advanced and and we just know this as as fact and and so it's it's mixed up in that way um, as well. In fact, the, the psychologist who just recently died was the one who fought the fight to get homosexuality removed as a official psych- psychological disorder from, you know, the, the big book of psychological disorders, whatever that's called. Um, DSM. Uh, yeah, again, we <laughs> yeah. did it there too. Oh. Yeah. Well, Sonia, it's been awesome. We yeah. Have- thank you for great. participating. This is great. We're on to your yeah. penultimate caller today. Um, and, but, <laughs> okay. but, um, but always, I think, um, uh, I don't want to say you're first in our hearts because we have so many great guests. I mean, we're all equal. We're all a big, yeah. happy oral but, argument but family. You say it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or you can think it even if you don't say it for sure. Oh, this has been awesome. All right. I, Thanks, I, Sonia. Okay. See you soon. Good talking to you. Happy Bye-bye. New Year. Hello. He's here. He's back. Hey, what's up, guys? It is uh, not just listener, Dave. Again, uh, as with our last caller, not just a listener he's also a guest and co-host of oral argument. <laughs> that's right should we mention last uh, yeah. names yeah go for it yeah dave fogundis is back again yeah hey. it's good to be here um sorry that you had to wait in line to get on the show today hey no problem <laughs> I, uh, I i didn't have a lot else to do <laughs> that that was that was that was a callback to uh, to your last appearance in which we discussed oh, that's lines. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, forgot that. I wrote a paper about waiting in line god i have the shortest memory yeah, that was, it was it was a really fun episode. I still um, think about that a lot. Not yeah, least of which because my local coffee shop now carries cronuts. Mm. Oh, right. How long do you have to wait to get those cronuts? Uh, I have not actually had one yet <laughs> <laughs> because the line is too long. <laughs> I, yeah, let's just say the line is too long. They, I, it doesn't look that good. But I think these cronuts come off of a large semi trailer. I've referred a number of people to that uh, to your paper about about lines the law of lines yeah Yeah. just just so they can figure out how to get a cronut faster i assume (laughs) (laughs) yeah you that's true you might increase your readership if you talk about how to uh how to how to game lines yes right Right. practical uh, advice regarding lines could be yeah right well google came out with something like this there's a there's a have you heard of the google app that's supposed to tell you how to not not game the system so much but you know the one i'm talking about the add-on no 
Okay, so I forget what it's called, but it's a it's an app that it's called uh, Peak Times or something like that, and it allows you to get a sense of how long the wait is at say your local Starbucks, right? So you can kind of time it. You can say, well, you know, if, if it's going to be twenty minutes for a coffee, I'll just do something else, or I'll wait like an hour. I just won't get a coffee or whatever. And <laughs> so the idea is, it's not it's not really cheating, right? It doesn't allow you to cut the line. Although now you can also order a coffee at a Starbucks and then just go pick it up um, without having to wait in line. Um, but the idea is if people have this information, then maybe they will distribute themselves more smoothly and you'll have less waiting just by virtue of the fact that people will make decisions based on trying to avoid peak wait times. Hmm. Yeah, kind of kind of like the promise that people, one, one of the promises of uh, self-driving cars, right, that they're able to queue much better and, and sure. take advantage of all yeah. the information about... We talked about this in, in the, in or the show. Or how when you, you call but... into like so, some um, some things, if you call the number for a customer service thing, it'll tell you like you know the wait's going to be X minutes, and I right. think that's to encourage people to call back at a different time if they hear that number and think it's too big. Yeah, but now yeah. now they increasingly tell you we'll call you back. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yes, those yeah. are. I, I love that, and I totally take advantage of that. There's also, I think I talk about this in in the lines paper. Um, there are services that will allow people who call in that have a certain status or are better customers to get to jump ahead in the queue, the calling queue, right? So one of the perks of being a good customer with whatever your like electric company or whatever is that you get to uh, when you call in, if other people are already waiting, you boom, you skip ahead of them. Wow. Well just to be clear, Dave, uh, the reason that you're last <laughs> in the queue for our calls today is only be, it's only because you wanted to schedule it that way. Dude, why did you tell me that? I need to hear that information. <laughs> I thought I was first. Well, oh, I guess I, I could edit this however I want. Keep hope I guess. alive. You really could. Really so lay it on us, Dave. Tell us. Tell us what is your what is your example of media that has influenced you in law and policy, or had an early influence, late influence, whatever. Tell us. Fill us in. Okay. So this is a very very late influence, right? And so um, the influence is. So what I'm interested in these days is. Uh, have you guys heard of? The, the Jeffrey McDonald case or the Green Beret murders? I had not heard of this at all. Okay, that's crazy, right? So let me tell you how I got interested in this. And it's related to the podcast you guys did a year ago at this time, which was about people's reactions to cereal, right? Yeah. So like, like many people, I was obsessed with cereal. And when it was over, uh, because cereal was kind of like a drug, I felt like a sense of withdrawal. And mm. so I asked her, I was like, if you feel a withdrawal from like true crime material, what would be good media to consume? Like something really interesting about a similar kind of case. And so I, I don't remember where I got the recommendation. I might have just found it uh, via the Googles. But um, I happened across the book, uh, A Wilderness of Error by the documentarian Errol Morris. You guys probably know from like Thin Blue Line, Gates of Heaven, others. Yeah. Um, and it is about uh, the 1970 triple murder um, but for which a guy named Jeffrey McDonald uh, is currently imprisoned. Um, McDonald's is, is, isn't this uh, pregnant the one, wife. Yeah, this is, isn't this the one that was, uh, what, what was it called? This is in the 80s, right? There was a huge documentary uh, about this one? So, yes. So you're thinking of the documentary Fatal Vision, which yeah. was made in 1984. But yeah. the actual murder happened in 1970, which is part of what's so weird about it, because he was originally like cleared at like the motion to dismiss stage of a 
or the uh, not that's civil, but uh, the arraignment stage of a court martial. Basically, the yeah. military trial court found there wasn't even enough evidence to go forward with a full court martial. It's like an Article Thirty Two or something. And so then he went free. And then his wife's, his deceased wife's father-in-law became uh, obsessed. Or his father-in-law, his deceased wife's father, became obsessed with this and and lobbied Congress and the Department of Justice, who had decided to let it alone. And so the DOJ investigated, brought charges. Um, his uh, Jeffrey McDonald's lawyer managed to uh, get the case dismissed on speedy trial grounds in the late 70s. Then um, the Supreme Court overturned the speedy trial dismissal. Then uh, he was convicted by a jury, by a you know jury in uh, the Eastern District of um, North Carolina. And then uh, the, that went all the way up back to the Supreme Court on speedy trial grounds. They affirmed this time, and the dude has been in jail since then, despite like countless appeals and habeas petitions and, and what have you, right? So the crazy, first crazy thing is I, I have sort of an affinity for true crime stuff. Um, this is a huge case at the time. In fact, over the holiday, I was talking to my uncle who was in the military, and he was like, oh, yeah, of course I've heard of that. Like he knew a guy who was stationed at Fort Bragg, which is where it happened when it happened. Right. But it's just not as, as obviously on the radar of uh, popular culture now, although if you talk to people who are interested in true crime or just, you know, there's a subset of people for whom this is still a very present issue because it continues to be litigated. Um, so when did this when know, did this book third, come? When did this book come out? So that's part of the weird part. Errol Morris published um, A Wilderness of Air in 2012, which I think speaks to the like ongoing interest in this case. And his argument was Jeffrey McDonald, who remains in prison, should not be there because he is at least legally innocent and possibly also factually innocent, um, which at the time, popularly, nobody really much believed. Not so much because McDonald was convicted, but more because the documentary that you mentioned, which is actually, I think it was not a documentary, it was a um, like a made-for-TV movie based on uh, the book Fatal Vision by Joe McGinnis, which was released in the early 80s. Uh, and McGinnis, who's uh, actually a very famous journalist who's written a lot of different things like the, the making or the selling of the president about Nixon. Uh, I think he wrote The Miracle of Castel de Sangro, which was about a soccer team uh, that had unexpected success in the, the 90s or early 2000s. Um, but anyway, he wrote this book after being retained by McDonald during the trial, uh, you know, on the understanding that he was sort of maybe a friendly or sympathetic party and then became convinced that McDonald was factually guilty mm. and wrote that book, right? And McDonald, who was horrified by this, right, who, who kind of believed that this would be the book that exonerated him in the court of public opinion, was, was livid. So he sued McGinnis for libel, and, and that case was settled. And then there's a book about that case, which is a whole other thing. But the point is, this oh is a massive issue. I know, right? It's a, it's a mess, and it's fascinating, um, and there's so much out there on it. But like, uh, like you, I had not heard of this when I read Errol Morris's book, which is like voluminous. I actually listened to it. I got it on Audible, but it took like a week to to listen to it. It was like so so long, and it's hundreds and hundreds of pages long. And Errol Morris, you know, is such a, a thorough, deep-oriented, incredible guy, right? I mean, the Thin Blue Line got somebody. Um, you know, uh, exonerated for, yeah. for a crime he had been in jail for for like over a decade. So, you know, if Errol Morris is making an argument that somebody is not guilty, you know, I'm going to take that very seriously. And so I became sort of... How, how many years before the Innocence Project really got going did the Thin Blue Line... I mean, that was... That was 88. Yeah, I mean, it was... 
I, I don't know. I, I'm sure if we look at it, there's there's probably been a long history of literature and investigative journalism that has resulted in exonerations because they're almost always such compelling stories. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but it does seem like something different happened after the Thin Blue Line. Um, right. Yeah. I can't no, put my I, finger on it because I don't. I haven't read enough in the area, but it it definitely felt like something changed after that. Yeah. So I should add, this is absolutely like as far from my area of specialty as it could possibly be. Right. Like I teach about property and IP. I'm, yeah. Prim is just not, not my thing, but per- I, I perfect I for the show it, then. Perfect. For exactly. The show. Right. So I'm speaking, I'm speaking authoritatively with absolutely no expertise. Yeah. I just want all listeners to understand <laughs> that. Um, and so, and so like, so this is the sort of experiment that I did. I first came to the Errol uh, Morris book. I read it and I was like, huh, he makes a very good and, you know, extensive case for this guy's innocence, not really knowing anything about it. And I sort of believed that like, maybe it was right that this guy had been wrongly convicted. And then a year later, um, I read, I finally got around to reading Joe McGinnis's book, Fatal Vision, um, which I only finished a few weeks ago. And now I am completely convinced that McGinnis is right and Errol Morris is wrong and that the physical evidence of McDonald's guilt is is undisputably like convincing proof of his guilt right so um here's the kind of interesting exercise that that I thought about there's like a lot of different questions but you know it it was kind of the opposite of serial for me so serial and you guys may differ on this I have I have no idea what I think about serial, right? When I listen, you know, what I've read, I've listened to the podcasts, and I've I've read a little, you know, extra stuff about it. Um, but and I've talked to a bunch of people about it, but I'm still completely conflicted about what may or may not have happened. In fact, I think that maybe after listening to serial, like the only thing I'm convinced of is that there's just like not enough evidence out there to say anything either way, or like not maybe legally, right? I could get the legal argument that maybe. Uh, you know, Adnan wasn't proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But as a factual matter, what happened? I'm like, that is a morass of a soup of an enigma. And I, have yeah, no idea I, I think that. that's where right. uh, that's roughly where we came down. Right? Yeah. That there, Certainly what where was clear I am. Is it, yeah. It's beyond it's beyond any reasonable doubt that he's not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. I mean, it's beyond? it's crazy to think that he's uh, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So, so oh, okay. like, yeah, right. like, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Because the evidentiary record is such is such a stew of stuff, yeah. including lots yeah. of stuff that's highly doubtful yeah um that yeah. that does not accumulate to guilty beyond but on the other doubt. hand if you ask you know did he do it it's uh, I, so i mean <laughs> that's the problem right jay, it's like, yeah this guy jay knew where the car was i mean it's really kind of comp- i don't know I, I think we came down we, yeah. we don't know and that was what was interesting to us about it is that it that it that it explored that zone of uncertainty and made you think about what you would do with that and and for you it sounds like in the mcdonald case this the uncertainty surrounding it and, and the the relative certainty with which the two um, the, w- with which these books have treated it have only kind of, you know, um, spurred you on as it yeah. does with many people. Right. To kind of want to delve in more. And I, are you trying to satisfy? Do you, but you're it, convinced now from that that he actually did it. But is that what you were looking for? That's kind of my question. Like, yeah, were you so driven on to because you wanted to achieve certainty because you're uncomfortable with uncertainty? I mean, how do you? Yeah, go ahead, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. So these are all great questions. They're kind of the ones I was thinking about, right? Because this is the inverse serial. Um, but here's here's one thing that was just weird for me as like somebody who, you know, I think all law professors, maybe like many professions, you you try to figure out uh, you know, some accurate answer. You you want to be able to believe that you can like assert something with some degree of confidence that it's true, right? I mean, not like a true statement in the sense that it is true that we don't know what happened in serial, right? Um 
But in this case, you know, uh, you know, it, it was weird to me that I went for a, I read Errol Morris's voluminous book, and he's a smart guy, and he makes a very good case. And so for a year, I felt very confident that he was probably right, and this guy was like wrongly convicted, right? A year later, I read another book, and I have a completely different opinion now. And so this <laughs> makes me think a bunch of things. The first thing is it makes me it reminds me how like small C conservative, I need to be about my own powers of like judgment, right? That like reading one book, you know, on something makes you feel like an expert because you probably know more than a huge percentage of the population, but it doesn't act, but that, that sort of subjective feeling of expertise does not translate into actually knowing what you know is true or not. And yeah, you get, you get the emotion of knowing. Yeah. Right? And, and, and in fact, you do know like a thousand percent more than you knew before you, before you read the thing. But yeah. You, but that emotion, and a lot of like, more than anyone who hasn't read it. Yeah, yeah, when you read a book, especially that 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 emotion of completeness, right? Uh, of that you've seen the story. I mean, this is human beings. Our minds are all about stories, maintaining stories. And after you've read a book, you have a story in your head of the way things have gone. And especially if it's a piece of advocacy. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about the serial podcast is it never set out like you couldn't escape the uncertainty because they never told uh that's what they focused on. they focused on the uncertainty yeah, yeah. right they're they're very explicit about that and you know this is a slightly different issue but I, I think it's still interesting you know she kind of sarah koenig kind of covered like covered herself from the accusation that this is all just an exercise in you know like rumination about the nature of the truth because he was like well i'm a journalist right i'm just i'm trying to put evidence out there figure out what i know and if the answer is we just don't have enough evidence to say a certain answer, then that is the only responsible answer to give, right? But when you read what Morris is doing in a, in a wilderness of error, or when you read McGinnis in Fatal Vision, they're explicitly portraying themselves as simultaneously journalists and some version of an advocate, right? So let's say that their, their position as journalists is that it is definitely true that you know, McDonald is either innocent or guilty, right? And here are two very smart people who have spent years with evidence, you know, that I haven't, who thought very carefully about it and have come to precisely opposite conclusions. And, and, and this is like, it's, so in a way it's the, it's a very different exercise than, than serial because there are parties who believe that there really is true certainty, but it, it, you come away to some extent with a similar lesson, which is the sort of malleability of truth. Um, and to answer your earlier question, do I have comfort or discomfort with this? Here's why I have discomfort with it in this case. I mentioned that there was like a third book written by Janet Malcolm. It's called The Journalist and the Murderer. And it's about the case that, well, it's about the whole case, but especially the libel suit that McDonald filed against McGinnis. And there's a famous, I haven't read it, the whole thing, but there's a famous passage where she says, you know, it's really just kind of like, you know, trying to find truth in the McDonald case is like, you know, a silly philosophical question like angels on the head of a pin, right? You're basically just looking closer and closer, you know, less and less, kind of a serial point. Both uh, Errol Morris and Joe McGinnis loathe this passage from Janet Malcolm's book. They're saying our whole, the whole point we're trying to propound in, in each of our books is that that is not true and that this is, you know, truth is not infinitely relative and, you know, evidence, it does not, you know, there's, you know, it is not true that there's always, you know, evidence to prove any given point. There is a definitive answer and here it is. This and cat both, is either alive or dead inside yeah, this box. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's Schrodinger's murderer. So um, <laughs> and, and so and so that's that that to me. And, and I found myself getting sort of like played like by Aaron Morris until I read this other book. Um, and now I feel like, you know, on the one hand, 
if you were to ask, you know, do not, I'm sort of like saying this, right? It is my opinion based on this that the physical evidence discussed by, um, you know, McGinnis and in the other sources I've read is pretty definitive, right? But at the same time, like I'm really just having the same response I did a year ago after reading the earlier book, which seemed equally credible and convincing, right? Yet I'm trying to resist Malcolm's conclusion that there is no certainty here, right? Mm. And so that is a, that is a sort of like, you know, um, sort of mess that I, the interesting mess that this is all left me with. Inevitably in sometime in the first year, I, 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 well, maybe not inevitably, I usually try to call my students attention um, or ask them, you know, especially if they've read um, usually a case with Scalia and dissent, if they've had this experience where they read the majority opinion and they just say that's, you know, they felt it was right. And then they read the dissent and they felt it was right. And so basically they're believing whatever they read last because they're written by (laughs) a very accomplished, um, rhetoricians and, um, and, and good legal minds. These are smart people writing this stuff. And, and if that's the case, um, is it because like you were just like, you don't know enough yet to know who's wrong or does it teach you something about what truth is in the context of making uh, a legal argument? Now that's, I think that's a lot yeah. less, it's a lot less controversial to, to, to use that as a teaching point when it comes to the law, you know, cause basically it's just the legal realist point that the that the law is the working out between these people of different ideas about things rather than a thing mm-hmm. written in the sky that, that smart people can discover. But it's much more controversial to make that kind of claim uh, about the, about facts, about the truth. Right. But, right. um, so it, it, cause it, these it, people are dead. They wound up dead somehow. How is right. the somehow they wound up dead? The cat like there's the an answer is, to that the question. Cat inside the box is either alive or dead. If right. it's a real, yeah. you know, box yeah. and real cat, right? <laughs> exactly. And, um, but how can we ever be certain with the fact that we have to make very consequential decisions without ever really being able to know that? The f- yes, it's true that the cat is either alive or dead. It's true that either he committed these murders or he didn't. I mean, I think the new season of Serial is kind of more interest is is not more, but. Is, is interesting in a different way because it's not necessarily about exactly what happened, although in part it is. It's it's about how you feel about what we all agree happened. That's a different yeah. kind of uncertainty. But but here, you know, either he killed these people or he didn't. That's really what's at issue. What do we do as a society when we can never be sure about that question? Yeah, and may I add one thing to that? Yeah. Um, I think there's also a meta question hovering over this, which is there are people who – believe that we can be sure about this, right? So the, the judge that, who's now deceased, who presided over the case, was astonished by the jurors who like heard all the evidence. I mean, it was like unanimous, right? They've heard much more evidence than we have. So I think if you ask the judge or those jurors, they would say, this is not the kind of case where we might have to write it off into the mists of uncertainty. Maybe Serial and, you know, the Adnan Syed, uh, you know, it matter is such a case. But there is a subset of cases, and I don't know if it's more or fewer of them, that for which there is a determinate enough truth that we can be confident about it, right? And I think the hard question is knowing what subset of cases have the degree of certainty that we're willing to hang some major outcome on it, like sticking a guy in prison for the rest of his life. Because McDonald insists to this day on his innocence. And if he merely said, yeah, you guys are right, I did it, he would probably be paroled, right? And that's one of his defenders' major sort of, you know, pieces of, you know, third order circumstantial evidence or like, how could it be true that somebody who was facing, you know, dying in prison, who actually did the crime wouldn't eventually just say, okay, you got me, I want to spend the last like 10 to 15 years of my life, not incarcerated. Mm -hmm. 
which he could get by being willing to acknowledge that he did it. Yeah, that's the point. Is that the reason? So that's that he, the price. Yeah. Yeah. So he's categorically denied parole every time he goes up because the sort of apparently the threshold question again. I don't know, Krim, but the threshold question for can you get paroled, or at least in this context, is do you admit guilt, right? And his answer is always categorically no. And they say, well, then parole's not even in the discussion, right? And every time he's, he's even remotely considered for parole, he says, I'm innocent. And they say, forget it, go back to prison. Yeah, it's right? interesting. It's a, it's a systematic bias against the two to 5% of the people who actually are innocent. Yeah, exactly, right? Those are the worst off people because they're going to get screwed the most. People who are guilty or willing to lie, right? And willing to just say they did a crime because they figure they are screwed in terms of actually getting exonerated and they just want to escape jail. I mean, th- you could just like be guilty, um, have denied it, then lie and, and, and then, you know, just, like, get out of prison, right? I mean, that's, that's yeah, so the, co- the worst combination is being wrongly convicted and being very highly principled. <laughs> right, because right, because then, then you will say no. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna quote admit something I didn't do. Yeah. I'm not. You want me to quote accept responsibility? I didn't do it. If I yeah, if my memory were better, I could probably quote ten movies right now and books based on that kind of premise. Yes, right. I mean, right. I'm trying to remember a single one, and I can't. Well, uh, it's so we deeply. Perfle- I think people keep going back to it because it's such a deeply perplexing problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so after this odyssey of these uh, of these books, did you read all three of these books? No. So there's actually there's sort of three and a half, and I've, okay. I've read two and a half. So the, okay. um, there's there the first one was written in the early '80s, and it's Fatal Vision by Joe McGinnis. Yeah. Errol Morris wrote his book in 2012. That's a Wilderness of Error. Then McGinnis, who died uh, last year actually in 2012 or 13, wrote um, Final Vision, which was his kind of rebuttal to Morris. And then in the sort of ancillary book to all this is Janet Malcolm, who wrote The Journalist and the Murderer in 1980 and maybe 1990-ish. And that's the one that I haven't read, partly because, you know, it's, it's more like a, a rumination on the nature of, of, of truth, almost serial style, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, I'm kind of, oddly enough, like I'm, I'm with both Morris and McGinnis, for whom the only thing they agree on is that, uh, Malcolm has to be wrong that there is no way to discern the factual truth of what happened on that night. Um, but it's a, this is the thing, though. So, it, so yeah, they uh, both agree that you can know the answer to this question. They just happen to disagree about the answer. That's exactly right. That is their position. Right. But there's another sense in which they could both be wrong. And that's that um, it's even if it's theoretically knowable, even if it's possible that had there been an observer there, you know, th- there is a there is a universe in which that question would be knowable. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I kind of, <laughs> there's so much I want to say, right. but, but, no, but, 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 but is the universe we live in is one in which that the answer will never be known. Right. So it could be, for example, one of, one of the ways that defenders, uh, the sort of like slight middle position in favor of McDonald is that there was enough physical evidence at the time that of, uh, shortly after the murders that could have proved that he was either innocent or guilty, but because the investigation was horribly botched and it was with like, you know, people from the media and like, you know, investigators like tramping through the house and destroying the scene and all this stuff, we no longer live in a world in which we can make a definitive call. And in that world, the presumption of innocence means we have to go with innocence, Mm -hmm. right? That is, that is a sort of like lawyerly way to, to split the difference between all of this. But again, the the presumption of innocence is the recognition about unknowability, right? It it, it is the, the machine machinery we have in the law to deal with this problem that that you know of what does it mean to know something has occurred you you're just are never going to 
um, uh, even in clear cut cases, there's always a possibility that everyone was living under some kind of illusion. And so we have this standard, which is meant to sort and and make, as we've said before in the show, sacrifices. Like we know that some people are going to be guilty and and go free and some people are going to be innocent and And prison. you could make the opposite. I mean, you could you could construct a system that were predicated on the opposite principle, right? That mm-hmm. uh, as soon as there's the slightest whiff of reason to think someone perpetrated a crime, you ought to imprison them until they vindicate themselves. That that uh, that system obviously well, and, and is and set what, up to deal with an entirely different sense of yeah. risk, an mm-hmm. entirely different sense of safety and precaution. Um, but but you, it's a choice that you make about how to deal yeah. with your what's your default rule and, that and why. Has been, I mean that that kind of thing can easily become the system when people are worried enough. You know, if yeah. there are a series of bus bombings and you yeah, know, the United I States, mean, people go nuts. And you know, fair point. I was making a slightly different point on the McDonald yeah. case. I, I we did a show with Lisa Kern Griffin. You remember? Yep. great show. Uh, she's at Duke, and we talked because she'd written this thing about narrative and uh-huh. trial. And and I want to say in her paper she mentions the McDonald case. It's no, I don't, but I don't know that it, it came but... up on the podcast. I don't think I put it in the show notes. And I don't remember if we talked about it on the podcast. But anyway, another data point. I don't know if you've yeah. read her stuff, uh, Dave. No, but, but it's a really that great sounds... little. It's a great paper. Uh, um, in isolation, but I think her work more generally too is is really interesting on this point. Yeah, and have you guys seen the uh, the Netflix documentary, The Making of a Murder? No, yeah. but you're the second person to mention ah, it today. Okay, well, this is the new serial, right? The new serial is not really a new serial; it's too different, and it doesn't sort of like satisfy the same like you know desire to get into a mystery and true crime thing. So the the real new serial is the the Netflix documentary, The Making of a Murder, and and I've watched two episodes of it, so I'm I'm not going to spoil any of it. Um, but it's it's very it's, it's you know it reminds me very much of the McDonald case at least insofar as you have someone who had you know there's a guy who spends a lot of time in jail everybody thinks he's guilty um, you know but he insists to the contrary and I think I'm going to stop there because if I said much more I would have to spoil some things. Um, <laughs> well, the policy of this podcast is that anything can be spoiled completely by anybody for any reason or no reason at all. So we nope. I, nope. That no, is the not, policy of this podcast. No, it's the policy of Joe. It's not my policy. I think you guys have a profound disagreement as to the truth uh, or falsity of this, right? So, <laughs> You're right. Uh, I don't. I don't know if this is something about which there can be truth. Is there like a written, you know, thing that could tie break it? Like I don't know. But um, so there, I, I could, we have I so many profound differences. Christian Dave, is that, the one who edits the tape, though. So really, <laughs> oh, he's yeah, well, you know, then he's he's basically like you know he's creating the truth of this podcast. I can't I believe right. you let him have that authority. Well, yeah, it's all about power, I suppose, in the end, and <laughs> uh, and and we'll know when if this conversation is itself made public. That will be some oh. indication. I mean, this could all be disappeared by him mm. later. This yeah. is true. He could I, just remix the words into saying something completely different than I actually said to sort of right. like further further make points about like the nature of, of truth. But uh, we'll, we'll am, see what yeah, happens. I am, I am nefarious and I do maintain a memory hole that I can <laughs> cram things down. <laughs> Dave, it's been great. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, this was fun, you guys. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, can't wait to have you on and your next role uh, in, in, in your next guest appearance. Um, we got to yeah, make that happen cool. soon. Yeah, absolutely. I'm writing about happiness now, so it's uh, it's the opposite of waiting in line, which makes people miserable. Happiness. So it's to- <laughs> that doesn't sound appropriate for our show, does it, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's a critique of happiness, but in any event, Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah, Happy, All right, New, happy Year. New Year, guys. See you later, Dave. Take All care. Right. I wonder if we should try one more. No. Hold on a second. Hold on. Hold on. No. Hold on. No. Hold on. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mom. Who is it? This is Christian. What? Oh, hey, Christian. How are you? I'm great. 
your podcast. Oh, really? Well, um, you might be on an, on another one. You might be able to listen to yourself in the future. Do you want to be on our podcast? Sure. If oh. you don't make me sound like an idiot. Well, I, I'll do what I can. I'll do. <laughs> I don't. I don't anticipate that being a problem. You, you know what the topic is? You know, you know that we ask people to tell us about something that they've read or watched or seen or some piece of art or something that made them think about law and policy uh, in a different way or made them think about society in a different way? Yes. A, either in, at, early in life or later in life, whenever. So what is that for you? you got 10 seconds. Um, well, I was thinking about this on the drive over after I listened to your podcast. Oh, okay. And I was thinking the thing that, you know, just sort of piqued my interest uh, really wasn't a media kind of thing. It was an experience uh, that I had in college um, where I served on my college's uh, honor code. Uh, you know, had the time uh, been a little bit later, I might have pursued a, a career in the law. And then once, you know, you guys, you and your brother, became involved in it and started talking about interesting cases and, um, you know, it just piqued my interest even more. And I remember, I was trying to remember the name of the movie, and I cannot remember it, but it was the big um, tobacco case. Oh, The, uh, the Insider. Started, Michael Mann's The Insider. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how, you know, just every time I see, you know, I love movies, so every time I see a movie... Um, that has that kind of element. It just piques my interest even more. And you and I have talked about this before. I think about all of this. I have difficulty articulating it sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and so you have some regrets about not, not going into law? Yes, hmm. I do. Uh, although they're tempered by knowing that, uh, you know, I, I did pursue something that I felt very successful at doing and uh, was able to use some of the qualities that and uh, abilities that I might have used in the field of law uh, in this other position, being able to make, you know, um, sort of thoughtful decisions and, and considering all aspects. Yeah, and, a, uh, as you, a teacher I, and a principal. As, this is a noble... Right. This is a noble right, pursuit. Right, right. Right. I do think that my um, my perceptions of what I would have done in the law, uh, you know, are, are, are maybe not realistic. Um, as you and your brother point out, I see the glamorous that for, uh, you know, parts of it and don't realize the nitty gritty kinds of things that he's often involved in, well, what, uh, which what, he doesn't like so much. Yeah, but what you're saying is that you, uh, uh, that when you see a movie or you listen to a podcast or you do something else, uh, it uses a part of your brain that you you like using, you know, that that you, you watch The Insider and you see the stuff and you, you are thinking about it in ways that you haven't thought about other things and that you very much enjoy that as a hobby almost at this point. Absolutely. Like when I was listening to your podcast from last week uh, about the situation with uh, people remaining in prison uh, after they should have been freed because, you know, the Supreme Court's dragging its feet on this thing. Um, you know, it just, it, it really, I've thought about it the whole way uh, on this long drive over to Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, and every time I'm in the car, whenever an opportunity, I'm just, you know, really absorbed with podcasts that revolve around that, serial, um, 
you know, that's undisclosed, which is a follow-up. I find that as fascinating, if not more so, because it gets into the nitty-gritty of uh, logical thinking of this should have been uncovered, and had it been uncovered, this would have happened, and all missteps that were taken. So I really love thinking about all that, and, uh, you know, just really enjoy it. You guys have done a fabulous job. Well, well, thank you. On that note, we're gonna we're gonna end it. And um, thanks yeah, we, a bunch, mom. We can't do better than that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks Take, for calling. Okay. Happy New Year. Happy New, New Year. Year to you. Well, there you go, Joe. Amazing. Who else are we gonna call? No one. <laughs> happy New Year, Joe. Same to you. <laughs>